Are you a Sopranos fan? Yeah, I love it. I can't help but think that you were. Uh, mm-hmm. So Amy and I, we, we never rewatched it. We, we watched it live when it was on, which I think was circa like 1999 to 2006. Everybody knows that it started before 9-11 because like two or three seasons it had the twin mm. twin towers in the opening credits and and then it of course didn't i have to say we just got done two nights ago and i i have to say i i, I was I, it was one of those things where we didn't rewatch it not because we didn't want to but because i insisted on putting it off as long as possible to to delay the gratification and I have to say, it it was so much better than I remember. It was I always thought it might be my favorite show of all time, and almost certainly would have been my answer to what's the best show of all time. But it's so much better and so much more enjoyable than I remembered. It's stunning. Yeah, I've only seen it once as well. I I watched it in real time, but I I started I think maybe the second. I didn't get HBO until like the second or third season, so I had some catching up to do. So I got to like binge it a little bit. Mm. Um, and that was fun in in the you know the old the old west of the internet. We had to try to find copies of the earlier seasons before they were out on DVD. Um, and when the series was over, I essentially declared it my favorite TV show of all time. But that was a long time ago, and I've always kind of not dreaded rewatching it, but wondered if I rewatch it, it's probably not going to be your favorite show of all time again. Maybe you just felt that way after you watched it because you know you're you know I really like the ending, and I just you know I thought it was. Great. And there's so much great TV has come since then that surely it probably doesn't hold up. So I haven't rewatched it just because I'm letting it live in my memory as my kind of default answer of, oh, if you had to pick your favorite TV show of all time, what would it be? Um, and there's favorite versus best, right? All right. For, for, for many re- you know, I'm, you know, coming from the New York metro area, being Italian American, there's lots of things that are make this show in my wheelhouse. And I love these type of movies, uh, you know, Godfather, Goodfellas, all that stuff. Anyway, there's lots of things that make me predisposed to love it independent of its quality, but also the quality is very good. So I haven't rewatched it. I don't know if I'm saving it for my retirement or something, because it is, it's more of an investment than rewatching The Godfather, which I've done many, many right. times, but I will eventually rewatch it. This, that, see, this is where you're in my Venn diagrams overlap. And when they do overlap, they overlap so completely. You know, and then there's parts that, that they're like diametrically opposed. And that's why I almost feel like I insulted you by asking you if you enjoyed The Sopranos, because I was so sure that you would for all the reasons you said. Even if you had been born in California, you know, I think you would have enjoyed it. God forbid. It. Right. But I, you know, the fact that you are from New York and you are Italian American. And I know that I know, I happen to know because you and I, you know, have talked about it. I know you enjoy The Godfather and Goodfellas. You know, how could you not like The Sopranos? But I never know when you and I are going to disagree on something. But your, your, your reservations at rewatching it echo my own years, many years long procrastination of, of rewatching it. And I have to say it held up so much better than I expected. It's remarkable. Like the one thing that I didn't anticipate was because the thing I remember was it was the first show, maybe the first show period, but it's certainly the first show I knew where they went way off an annual schedule where towards the end, the gap between seasons grew. I don't want to say exponentially, but sort of exponentially semi almost exponentially. Like there were, it was like two years between like some of the seasons and 
they one of the things that I actually like it about this show, but they never did the okay, the show opens up previously on the Sopranos, and here's like a couple of clips from last week to refresh you, and here's some clips from two years ago to remind you about this thing that's gonna happen on this show. They didn't do that. They've never done that. So it's like you remembered what you remember. And I got so much more out of it binging the whole thing straight through six seasons because I could keep it all in in my mind. There was so much that I missed the first time because it was like I, I just forgot about, oh, that's that guy from like uh, two seasons ago. Yeah, there's a lot of characters in that show. Like, you know, it's it's so much not rewatching a TV show is so much more of a commitment. You picked a good time to do it, you know, being trapped inside and everything. Um, but rewatching a movie, you can hold the whole thing in your head and keep it all together. Uh, but I think that that is the advantage of the rewatch. If you really can jam it all in, you will have a much larger portion of the show and sort of the working set of your brain's memory lets you appreciate all the details more. Well, and the other thing that's so obvious is that, you know, it's not like they took these gaps between seasons because they were the creators of the show were goofing around. It was, you know, I, it was so rich that it took them a long time to write it, you know. Uh, and it's so, it, I just forgot that, like, in between seasons as a viewer, it fe- felt like there's a gap. Whereas when you binge it, you're like, oh, these people who made the show, this is like, this is like one big novel that plays straight through over seven years very naturally. Uh, it's so impressive. I, I'm, just blown away and i need to talk to somebody about it the worst moment was two three nights ago where where we had three episodes to go we watched two so the third to last and then the second to last as as they call it the penultimate and it didn't feel right to keep going right through to the finale and amy was tired she gets you know a little bit tired before i do at night you know and it felt disrespectful to the finale so you got to save it but i I wasn't that tired. And the second to last episode leaves you so up in the air. It was like the closest I've come to insomnia in years. Like I just couldn't, I was just laying in bed reading books on my iPad, like could not sleep because I didn't remember everything that happened in the finale. It was, and I knew it was just sitting there waiting, waiting for us to watch. So how did you handle the? Was it always sixteen by nine? I forget. It's the wire no. that they had to they had to redo the, I think the they, framing for, right? I think they had to redo the Sopranos too. I didn't notice it, everything looked good in sixteen to nine. They must have gone back to the original instead of just cropping. They must have gone back to the film because other, I don't think it was even high def in nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, no, I remember when it when it switched to high def. I I saw this whole big thing about how they did the wire because the wire they did actually shoot uh, like the 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 you know the the four by three had a lot more information in it than was uh, available in the sixteen by nine, and so they you know they got what's his name David Simon or whatever the, yeah. the guy who did yeah. the wire uh, was involved in the in, in attempting to make a good HD version of it, and I think they did the, the best job possible. But it's still kind of weird when these shows span the the standard def and high def eras, you know? Yeah, I it's it, the first few. Se- I I would say they did a very good job, and it was even to me not noticeable. And I don't remember ever seeing anything cropped out that looked bad. I don't know. I don't know if they cropped out or if they had stuff that they could go wider. I, I'm not quite sure. I, I never, I didn't look at it, but it, it stood up to me. You can kind of see though, it was the thing to me was that in the, f- especially the first season, 
there were some shots in some scenes, and it wasn't a cropping issue. It was like, uh, it it was like a, a noise issue. Like somehow, when they went back to it, there were some shots that were in low light that once they blew it up to high, like maybe they didn't have the film. That's what I'm thinking is maybe they didn't have the film for those shots and had to blow it up from the standard def version. There were a couple of shots, even Amy commented on it and she's not one to comment on something technical like that, but only in the first season. Yeah. It almost makes me, uh, it's kind of like playing old video games on like modern equipment. I wonder if it would have been better to like, to watch the first season on a standard F television, or can we just not go back to that anymore? <laughs> no, I think it was, it, it holds up and it, and it makes it seem more seamless. It's like a more seamless experience to go straight through. Yeah. You just watch it on HBO. No. Uh, yeah. HBO max. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's what they call max, it. As if that's a thing. <laughs> well, you know what? It really annoyed me. What really, I, here's another thing. It, this is true. And I remember always enjoying the opening credits and theme song of the sopranos so we binged the whole thing i don't know how many episodes it was at least 13 episodes a season you know times six 60 plus 18 78 but i think some of the seasons had more episodes uh i don't know 70 to 70 to 80 episodes we watched the theme to every single one even when we watched like three in a night we we never skipped the the opening credits, and Amy skips the credits to everything. It's such a good it's such a good theme song and such a good opening credit, and they never changed the credit or credits over the seven years. Yeah, it's good credits, but they're kind of long. I mean, I guess yeah. if you're getting settled in to watch, it's fine. But <laughs> yeah, it's like a thing. I don't know. And and now I'm back on it. The other thing too is that I associate when I hear the HBO static fanfare, I still for years and years afterwards, as soon as I see any HBO show, I expect the Sopranos theme song to to immediately kick in. And the only HBO show that rivaled that in terms of setting my ears expectation for what to expect after the HBO static was uh curb your enthusiasm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I Sopranos is still the one for me too, but it, it's shifting a little bit over time. I, I do skip the intros. One show that I've watched recently, I realized I watched almost all of season one and I realized I'm not skipping the intro on this show. Um, it was uh, the, the TV adaptation. No, it's not an adaptation. The TV version of Snowpiercer. Here's the movie Snowpiercer. I did see the movie Snowpiercer, and I'm I would like to watch the TV version, but I I feel like it might be a tough sell on on the wife. I mean, it's not it's not the movie. It's a it's it's a you know inspired by the ridiculous premise of the movie. Here's a TV show with different characters, and you know anyway. Um, and in that they do this thing the show is pretty straightforward but they do this stylized thing where the the like the show starts without any credits you're just right in it and they have some small a couple of scenes like it's usually from one character's point of view and that character is narrating so this you know i don't know it's like 60 90 seconds 2 minutes of stuff where a character is narrating saying something about snowpiercer and then whatever it is like it's it's just it could you could have taken that scene and put it into the middle of any episode because it fits perfectly it's in the style of the show but then to the very end of that narration the character always says 
has some sort of wrap up phrase or like, well, that's what it's like on Snowpiercer or, you know, or, or the such is the way on Snowpiercer or, you know, something, something on Snowpiercer, 1,001 cars long. So they say, and blah, blah, blah on Snowpiercer, 1,001 cars long. And they cut from that into the credits, the quote unquote credits, which ties in with the the sort of tagline 1001 cars long then they show a very brief like musical thing that that has diagrams of the train and whatever and it's before you know it you're out of it and i think because of the sort of the the routineness the tradition of always saying something something on snowpierce or 1001 cars long leading into the credits it makes it seem like it's like, you know, someone doing shaving a haircut and not finishing it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have to play through the credits, and they're so short. Trying to skip them would be like trying to cut someone off in the middle of a sentence. It doesn't make any sense. And I didn't realize that. I didn't realize I was watching it. I didn't realize I was not skipping the credits until, like, literally three-quarters of the way through the first season. I said, this show has found a way to make me watch the credits. I didn't even realize I was doing it. So I give that show props for that reason alone. Uh Snowpiercer. So the 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 gimmick. I, what was it? A novel originally? What's the source material? Or was it a graphic novel? Uh, yeah, maybe a French comic or something. Yeah. I, I have no idea what the actual origins are. I first saw it when it was the movie. Um, but I think a bunch of people on Twitter told me it was like a a French comic or something like that. It's a it's a great premise because it it passes the sniff test of it doesn't even try to be vaguely plausible. It's <laughs> no, so it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, it's like the fifth element, right? Like the fifth element is like so dumb and nonsensical. Well, the fifth element tries to make some sense, but and then just falls back yeah, on, you know, and whatever. it's like falls uh, back, but Snowpiercer is like I don't remember what the movie tried to do. Maybe the movie was just trying to be kind of be like vague or like oh, the movie. I think the movie's premise the idea was there's stuff that you don't know, viewer. So maybe if there was, if you knew more as a viewer, this would all make sense. But we're right. just not going to tell you. But the television show is sort of obstinately insistent that oh no, viewer, you have all the information. No, this doesn't actually make sense. But just we're going to put it right in your face and say, like, the the television show repeatedly hinges on the nonsensical premise, right? Uh, that the train has to keep moving or they all die, right? Which doesn't make any sense right? In, in any way. And they don't try to explain it, but they're insistent that that is true. And it factors into the plot a lot. <laughs> but I, I think the thing that the movie was missing from the source material is the and what makes the the real premise so interesting is that the train is gigantic. Like you, mm-hmm. I, I apparently it's ten they, miles long. Yeah, yeah it's a ten mile long train with a thousand and one cars. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the movie, they only show you like there's like four cars. There's like I don't know. There's like the 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 place where all the 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 poor people are. In the back, coach, whatever they call it. Yeah, the the tail. There's the tail, there's the middle, and then there's the front, and that's it. Because they only have two hours. (laughs) And it's like. even on the TV show, like they they show establishing shots of the train being humongously long, but you know they only they only make so many sets, right? Right, and, and they also have a, in, in the television show since they have to sort of deal with this more often, they have a uh, sort of a basement level in the train, hmm. and w- within the basement level is a little miniature train that goes from one end of the train to the other. <laughs> oh, I like that. Because how the hell are you going to get your characters from the from the engine to the to the tail? It's right. ten miles. If they walk it, it'll take a really long time. So they got to go into. The, I figure what they call it is like the sub train or whatever. It's, it takes long enough on the real world to sell it to get to the the car where you can buy a soda. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. So this, yeah. So there's like the the ten sets they built for this show, uh, and there's ten miles of train. Uh, but each of the sets is like you know twenty yards long. Yeah. But um, it is it's an interesting premise because you can have this ten mile long thing with thousands of people, but because it's a train, it's completely linear. You know, you can't just skip around. But I guess with this little uh, mini train underneath, you can skip around. Yeah, because you kind of need that for plots. Because if you really can't get from A to B without going through C, like it's the your the stories you can tell are very limited. And that's yeah. what the, the movie does. It says, "Well, if you're going to get from the back to the front, you got to go through the cars, right?" Yeah. And this thing says, "Well, you can go under the cars, and then people in those cars won't see you because you're going under." And cool. you know, but but the, but the main premise, like that, that you know, the, every it's super cold on Earth. And everyone's on this train, all right, with you so far. Uh, and the train has to keep moving because if the train stops, then it'll run out of, you know, <laughs> run out of heat. Like, so it has to keep moving to produce heat. It's like, that's not how thermodynamics works. Like, it's just, you know, the effort you're taking to move this train could be used to keep people warm. But no, the, the television show says if this train stops, then there will be no more heat. They're, and they're producing midichlorians, John. Yeah. Like, just the faster the train goes, the more the batteries get charged. <laughs> Right? Is that how, <laughs> how it works? If only our electric cars work that way. The more you drive them, the more the battery gets charged. Uh, all right, let me take a break. Thank our first sponsor. Oh, it's our good friends at Mac Weldon. I don't know why they're telling me. They're, they want me to tell you about their spring essentials. It doesn't feel like spring here. I was shoveling snow. But they've got all sorts of stuff coming up. Spring is ca- coming. They've got a new set of stealth boxer briefs that deliver enhanced breathability and support. Perfect for everyday wear or layered underneath your workout gear. And for sweatpants you can wear outside without feeling like you're a lazy person wearing sweatpants. Check out their new Ace line. They've got these Ace sweatpants. I don't have a pair of these. My son does, though. He loves them, wears them all the time, looks very, very dapper in them. Agreed that they do not look like sweatpants. They look like nice pants, like nice athletic pants. Very nice. They're so nice. I actually ordered a pair before I even knew that this sponsor read was going to have me tell you about them. I'm going to have sweatpants. I haven't had sweatpants in years. Mack Weldon sells all sorts of other men's essentials, socks, shirts, hoodies, underwear, polo shirts, active shorts, all sorts of stuff. It's all great. I have lots of it. I love it. I'm wearing one of their hoodies right now as part of my multi-layering for the freezing cold here. Uh, I need a snow piercer. Uh, you can look great, feel great. They've got a great loyalty program. You don't have to do anything. You just give them, you do, when you, when you buy stuff, you give them your email address so they can notify you. You're already in the club and level one, you get free shipping for life. And level two, it's, you get there by just spending $200 total. Not like one order, but when you get to 200 bucks, then you get two, 20% off every order for the next year. It's a great deal. You don't have to do anything. You just buy stuff. You get in a loyalty program and you get free shipping and then you start getting 20% off everything you order. They want you to be comfortable. So if you do not like your first pair of underwear that you get from them, you can keep them and they will still refund you. No questions asked. They do not want the underwear back. Just keep it. But that's how confident they are that you're going to like it. Anyway, you can start with 20% off your first order by going to MacWeldon, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com slash talk show and enter that same promo code talk show when you check out and you will save 20% off. So my thanks to MacWeldon for reinventing men's basics. Go to MacWeldon.com slash talk show. I've got those sweatpants. How are you doing all this COVID times without wearing sweatpants? Are you wearing jeans in your house? I wear jeans every day. 
That's that's madness. I know. It's the, it's the outfit of the day. That's why I ordered them. I, I honest to God, you think I'm making this up, but I you you know me. You know me. I don't do homework before I do these podcasts. And at least of all, I don't really look at the sponsor read stuff. I was blown away. I looked at this Mac Weldon thing five minutes before we started recording. And I was like, holy crap, I just ordered these sweatpants the other day. Like literally, and, and they ship stuff fast too. Uh, I, it might have been yesterday. I don't know. I lose track of days. I think it was yesterday because I, I knew I didn't have the Sopranos to look forward to. So I ordered. So you're finally going to have some comfortable sweatpants just as like the vaccine is rolling out across the country. You're, you're way behind on this. Exactly. I had to buy new jeans too. I've, I've worn out my jeans just by sitting. It's, it's really depressing. Yeah, it's the it's the, uh, the rough and tumble uh, nature of your work that really wears through your clothes quickly. You know what? I got injured yesterday. I, I it's a good thing I'm podcasting today. I'm having I have hand problems. I got two blisters on my left hand from shoveling snow. Do you? Do you, <laughs> you got city hands, Mister Gruber? <laughs> do you shovel the snow, or do you do you have? The... I shovel it. I shovel it with my bare hands. Yeah. And um, every time I do it, I think to myself, I need, you know what I need is one of those, I don't even know what you call it. I think it's a hoe, but it's not a <laughs> shovel. It's a, it's a stick with a, like a thing at the bottom. So you can chop up the snow, you know, you, you yeah, got it. Well, you got to shovel it when it's fresh. Like you can't let it just get all damp and crusty and frozen. And yeah. Everything. See, I see, we can't do that. See, we live in the city and it's a, a busy pedestrian street. And so no matter how on the ball I am, it's already been sort of trampled by pedestrian traffic and that, that packs it down and, you know, it sort yeah. of turns it but, into an unshovelable, uh, uh, you know, closer to ice than snow. Yeah. I remember dealing with that, uh, you know, when it gets packed down, it happens less these days, but all the tools for like breaking through that, like the ones that really work well will also end up damaging the sidewalk. So, I mean, it's not your sidewalk. You probably don't care, but you also don't want your sidewalk all broken up in front of your house. So you got to be careful. Yeah. I, I actually, I don't know whose sidewalk it is. It might be mine. I might <laughs> be on all, the. It's all of our sidewalk. Yeah. Well, I I know this, if I want it, if it did get damaged and I needed it fixed, I think I'd have to be the one to fix it because, mm. you know. I don't think, you know, like I said, the city hasn't fixed that damn pothole with the the buses run over in front of the house. They're not going to fix the sidewalks either. Anyway, blisters on my hand. Can you believe it? I do. I do believe it. That's the, you know, uh, too, too many years uh, just cradling the mouse and typing on the keyboard. Not yeah. a lot of building up of calluses in that work. Yeah. And I gave up golf years ago. This is right on the spot where, where before I had a kid, I, I played golf. I'd have a bit of a callus there oh we I, we've had so how much snow have you gotten we've gotten more snow this year than oh in a long time i i don't mean to complain this sounds terrible because there's people in texas who've, who don't even have electricity and heat but it's a bad winter i mean we got more snow this winter than last winter but our last several winters have been incredibly mild in terms of snowfall this one is still i think below average for us for snowfall but it's not it's not nothing. Yeah, because you. I mean, I I lived up there uh, for two winters, and it was and that was enough for me. I mean, the one time we got so much snow, you couldn't even tell whose car was whose. I mean, it was ridiculous. Yeah, I, I can't. I should write down what year that is because I'm already losing track of it. But like the record-breaking year in Boston, we got like 150 inches of snow or something <laughs> ridiculous like that, and it was. It wasn't that long ago. I, I want to say that it was like five years ago, but I'm so bad with time. It could have been 15. Somewhere between 15 and five years ago, our area had 
record-breaking snowfall over the winter. It was like every single day another foot of snow would fall. We were running out of places to put it. I, I This is the good thing about it, having taken pictures of everything. I can actually go back in my photo library and just find the pictures of the ridiculous sort of overlook hotel, you know, in front of our house and say, oh, yeah, that must have been the year, and then just look at the date on the picture. <laughs> I I do I do remember that being an issue when we lived up there. We lived in an apartment, and I remember that it was an issue with the 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 you know they had the apartment complex would would have a truck come through and plow the thing. But then it, by the you know by this time of the winter, it was an issue as to where to put the snow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we have like so one of the big parking lots in the area. So we go for like walks with the dog, and we go by one of these parking lots, and it's one of those parking lots where they pile the snow, like the snow plows must come there and like dump it or pile it or whatever. And you know, we we do that walk, and it would be like springtime. It'd be like April or May, and we'd be walking around, and we'd be seeing that the snow pile still hasn't completely melted because it would be like five stories high, and it would just right. get small, smaller and smaller and smaller as the spring wears on, smaller and small, and just as it gets smaller, of course, all of the dirt that was on the snow right, right. compresses until it becomes just like a, it looks like a dirt pile, but it's right. actually snow and ice. Right. Right, Gross. the the amount of dirt that covers a five story mound of snow when it, mm-hmm. when it c- gets down to one story, you've got like uh, it's like exponential though. It's not like five times the dirt. It's like uh, five times pi times the dirt. <laughs> Is that how math works? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> five pi cubed or something like that. All right, I want to get off the merry-go-round of current events and talk to you about the state of the Mac. And I feel like I feel like we haven't done this in a while. Here's my first question to you: Do you do you ever regret that you that you don't write the annual uh, Mac OS reviews anymore? No, the way you phrased it. Do I ever regret that I don't write them? No, I do not regret that. I, I regret that you don't write them. <laughs> now, you could phrase it a different way. I say, do you ever regret uh, that they haven't been written by you as in past tense? That's different. But the but do you ever regret that I don't write them? It's like I, I was burned out on the writing process. I, don't, well, I wouldn't want to go through that again. I did it for 15 years. That's long enough. But I did enjoy after having written them. And I also enjoyed knowing all the things that I was forced to learn by writing them because now i when i want to know something about mac os i just gotta you know go to the internet and google for it instead of just knowing it because i spent six months writing a review right and even when there'd be a section where you would think oh well i know this but then you start writing it and then you realize you don't know it and now you know you've got to spend an entire week learning about this new subsystem yeah. that's why they took so long and then just constantly re- constantly revising them you'd know the facts because you'd be going over them again and again as every new build came out um but like, I was I was looking something up for ATP the other day, and I, you know I go back to my own reviews as a resource because now I'm sold. I don't remember the crap anymore. So I go, I read my own reviews, and it's like someone else wrote them. It's like, oh, there's a lot of good information here about this topic. <laughs> what was the last one you wrote? Uh, I gotta look it up. I don't even know that. Was it Yosemite? No, it I don't know weird. the names. I it, I I forget. I, I'm guessing it was ten eleven, ten dot eleven. Uh, I can find out in a moment. Uh, it was April 2015. It was Yosemite. Which What's the number on that, though? 1010. Uh, 1010. Right, so I was off by one. Um, it, what you're saying reminds me of the Mark Twain quip about 
the classics and that the classics are the books that everybody wants to have read and no one wants to read. You're, yeah. sa- you're saying that's how you feel about your, your reviews. Well, no, I, I want you to want have, to written, have, written, have them. written them, but the effort of writing them is very out of proportion to, you know, the enjoyment of having them already be written. Do you think it would have been harder? It probably would have with their new annual, truly annual cadence, because at least for much of the heyday of your writing those reviews, the schedule was sort of like, like the publication schedule of this podcast, highly irregular. Like, well, most, I mean, it mo- got towards the end, it got like it is now. Right. Like, it got harder as it went on because just look here, I'm looking at the dates. Um, July, July, October, October, those are 2011, 12, 13, and 14. So, they were basically on an annual cycle, give or take, for the last four releases I did. And they were doing the thing where we were, I was doing the thing where I had to have the article up on day of release right. with all the ebooks and the stores and all that other stuff. And so it was getting progressively harder. In the beginning, there was so much more leeway. Sometimes I didn't even publish on release day. But yeah, the last four years were absolutely annual with just, you know, the annual in July. Then they shifted to annual in October. So there was, you know, in the middle there, a little bit of a gap. But that was hard. And it it would be even harder today, like just because it, the Apple gives you so much less time to know when the release is coming out, right? Yeah, you'd have to you would have to more or less assume it was coming out at the end of September. Well, even like you know the whole thing they did with iOS, like oh, and yeah, and iOS fourteen is out tonight or whatever. You know, like they they, they used to give you a, a week or two notice, and you would need that because. You would never know, like, is this build going to be the GM? Is this build going to be the GM? And they could still change things, right? So, it, like, the lead time on the ebook store stuff alone was such a so annoying, right? You had to right. build the book and submit it to the stores and get it ready for publication so you could, you know, flip the switch on day of. But you have to know when day of is. Otherwise, like, when do you upload? Like, when do you submit, right? These things just, yeah. So I don't, I, I don't envy that. And I remember too that, uh, and it makes sense. It's not like, oh, I would have never thought of that. But when you really think about it and really like flip back through your reviews and see how copiously illustrated they are with screenshots, you were always a moment away <laughs> from having to retake every single screenshot in a review because of a cosmetic change in a late beta to the OS. Like, oh, the red, yellow, green buttons have changed slightly. So they change they change a shade of gray. They move something by a pixel, and and the the worst part is the screenshots weren't just there for the hell of it. There was always a long section where I talked about the new look, and if I had a whole big paragraph about you know the particular shade of gray, and they change a shade of gray, I got to rewrite it too. I don't just know how to take new screenshots. I got to rewrite it. <laughs> and there was no real way to you know you can't just automate it. You can't write like a. A build script that would take every single screenshot you needed to. No, you. Needed- I mean, I could, but that's, yeah. that, writing that script would probably double the the right. the effort of uh, of doing the review. Yeah. All right. Uh, I figured you'd say that. I mean, it it was a lot of work, but it 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 is. It's hard because without it, and and it. Because it was a singular effort, and I, d- I don't mean to take away from all the people who'd still write reviews of the annual releases, but nobody they weren't really even reviews. I don't know what to call them. They were like a, sort of an encyclopedia of this uh, – you know, you had your commentary in there, 
but it was sort of a thorough examination of everything that's new that's different than a quote-unquote review. Uh, well, I think one way to think about it is like through the the modern lens. Without Twitter for most of the period of time and without me having regular podcasts for most of the period of time, I had all these thoughts and opinions and you know analysis and insight and everything that didn't have an outlet. And so when it came time to do the big review – Everything that I had been thinking about related to the OS and the Mac and the platform and everything that would normally get drained out in a podcast episode or in a tweet or something got poured into the review. So, yeah, it was here's all the new stuff in the operating system. And, yeah, it was here's what direction we think Mac OS is going. But also every other possible thought and thing I had to say as, you know, as reflected by the the uh, changes to the operating system. So that's why, you know, you get things in there like, you know, this whole big section on the Swift programming language which isn't technically part of the OS, but it's a right. thing that I had been thinking about. So that gets its own section or, you know, automatic reference counting or Unix permissions and like all sorts of stuff that seems like, why is this even in the article? But I was trying to sort of weave a story of how I was thinking about the Mac over the course of the last year since since I last spoke to you in long form. And I had a blog on ours, like I had other outlets, but I didn't have you know, a weekly tech podcast for most of that time. And I wasn't tweeting for half that time either it is in hindsight it 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 is a tremendous accomplishment what apple's done with uh, for lack of a better catch-all name mac os 10 right over the entire time that they've been doing it like because they've they've never let it get stale i mean there have been bad patches you know of time Poor, poorer than others, but compare and contrast with Microsoft and Windows, which is the the obvious comparison, where it's sort of a singular commercial operating system, and it, it, the way it's been all over the place, especially the years after XP. Um, it's it, at a high level, it's really quite a thing, and especially you got to figure, you know, we're looking at. 20 plus years at this point, right? I mean, they more or less got started on what became Mac OS 10 in 1997 in some fashion. And by, you know, 98, 99, they sort of had zeroed in on what it was going to be. So 20 years, I mean, that's, there's just a lot of turnover. I mean, that's two decades is enough time that there's an awful lot of people who, who were instrumental in it who've retired or, you know, in the case of Steve Jobs, died. Right. I mean, it's a long time to keep something going that I think when you look at it at a very macro level, um, it has been continuously had a vision and a feel and a sort of true to itselfness. Yeah. It's proven to be a pretty good foundation for Apple to, uh, to explore the space, as they say, they, like it was, it was a scaffolding on which they could hang all sorts of ideas, and lots of stuff in the operating system has changed. Whole subsystems have been replaced and merged and split, and the way things are done has just changed radically. And they've been able to make all those changes to the plumbing without really, you know, totally breaking the UI, or even even without going through any sort of cosmetic level changes that are were particularly jarring it's just been a steady i would say evolution that implies that it is improving uh with respect to the environment that it's in 
Right. But I think it's just been kind of meandering, right? Mostly going in the right direction, supporting new hardware, uh, supporting the, you know, more features as as they've been uh, become necessary. But lots of sort of blind alleys and strange ideas. And importantly, it's never really gone through a, like, despite being as old as it is, it's never gone through a radical change that is anything close to the change from Classic to ten. Right. Classic to ten was like, not a clean sheet, obviously, but it was like, hey, there's these next folks, they've got their ideas. This is Max folks, we've got our ideas. Plus, there's some new ideas we can come up with, and they mash it together. And that was a big discontinuity from Classic to this. But Mac OS X has changed a lot. And if you look, well, look at 10.0 versus, uh, you know, 10.16. Look how different it is. Yeah, but in general, it's got a menu bar. It's got a dock. It's got windows. It's got scroll bars. Like, it's not, you know, it, it, it didn't change it that radically. Whereas the, the classic to 10 transition, no one even remembers that anymore. But it was such a big change. The, the tech, the, the the capabilities underlying it were changed. You know, preemptive multitasking memory protection. Uh the centrality of the dock, a thing that didn't even exist in the other thing, multi-user versus single-user, the permissions model, like all of that. Um, and and even that change, you know, they still kept the top menu bar and the basics all, you know, all, you know, so there's, there is a through line through the, through the course of the entire history of the Mac, but there's just that one big jump. And despite the fact that we went to, you know, this is Mac OS 11 now, right? Or whatever, right? This, despite yep. the fact that we've incremented the number and gone onto the iOS numbering scheme, it's going to be 12, 13, 14. It's, you know, I still think of it as one thing, whether you call yeah. it Mac OS 10, OS 10, or just plain Mac OS now. I don't know. What we're, I don't have a good phrase for it. We have classic Mac OS is what we call the other thing. I used to call this thing Mac OS 10, but Apple keeps screwing that up. So I don't I know. know what the hell to call it, but I, I call it Mac OS 10 because it's still, there are still parts of the OS that will report that. I, I forget where you have to go, but there's certain low level parts in the, like in terminal where if you type some, you know, inf- system information things, it'll still claim to be Mac OS 10. They did yeah, kind but, of screw us on that. Yeah. But, but it does, it does seem like that this, that Mac OS 10, has yet to have that moment where someone comes in and says, we got to rethink this, right? right? And and I don't think it necessarily needs that, but it's now gone longer than Classic has right. without that big rethink. It's gone longer than anything, really. I mean, I think Windows has had several of those moments, although maybe not recently. Maybe they're still... I, I, I think 3.1 three to 95 was probably the biggest jump, yeah. and then there was mostly cosmetic crap. Maybe you could say Windows 8, tried to pull in a direction but right. lurking underneath windows 8 is still all the xp stuff so right. i don't know how to what to make it windows yeah you have windows installed as a gaming thing right you you play yeah. games so uh my son has a gaming pc and i've spoken about this on podcasts before but i i just don't use i have no interest in it don't use windows haven't used it i think the last time i used it personally was let me think about this. I was writing during Fireball, so but I had a consulting job out in the suburbs for a few months to to make you know because I wasn't making any money from during Fireball. So I'm going to say it was like 2003 to four or or around there, and I had to use a, a Dell PC to do some programming stuff, and it was so bad. It was it it. <laughs> I, the thing I remember was that it had tap to click on the trackpad. 
which is the feature where instead of actually clicking the trackpad, you could simulate a click just by touching with your thumb. And of course, circa, I don't know how good it is now, but circa 2003, Windows and Adele trackpad, it was horrible. And there was no way to turn it off. And I spent like two entire days on the clock getting paid, searching for a way to turn off tap to click on this thing. And I wound up just like requisitioning a mouse and like putting tape over the trackpad and just using a mouse with the the laptop to do it. I don't think I've used Windows in any regular sense since around then, 2004. So anyway, Jonas has a gaming PC and, you know, I let him know, you know, this will be mostly on you to become an expert on because I, I don't know anything about it. But he, he, he had a, his video card went bad. He he has a 4K monitor, and it, the the manifestation was that the monitor would only run at like 640 by 480, or maybe 800 by 600, but nowhere near enough, and it was stretched horribly, and none of his games, of course, would run, and it was using, it, but it, but he he was still connected to his video card. And so I didn't, we didn't know how to troubleshoot it. And then we Googled it and there was all sorts of things that you could try to do, but I, you know, got to, got to know Windows a lot better than I, than I had in 15 years. And what blew me away troubleshooting this is that for all, everything that looks totally different in Windows 10, there's like a second level that looks like Windows from 10 years ago. And then there's a third level that's just Windows XP. So like like when you're like goofing around with the system settings for the display, there's like a new one that looks like the new Windows 10 look, but it only has like the very high level stuff to set. And then there's like a button somewhere in that that's like advanced and you click that and it opens up a window that literally it doesn't even have the, the, the new theme. It just looks like windows from 10 years ago. But then in that dialogue, there's another button that opens up a button that just looks like windows XP. And that's where like all the driver stuff is. <laughs> it's just, they just built all of this new crap on top of the old crap without getting rid of it. It's all still there. And when you get into trouble, you kind of have to dig into it. And even like the, just the the Chrome, just the UI Chrome isn't updated. It, it's like uh, every sci-fi story. They, they uh, think most famously parody in Futurama, where the new city is built on top of the old city, which is built on top of the old city. And you yep. just keep going down and down and get to the Morlocks that are down there editing the registry keys or whatever. It it blew me away, but it also gave me a tremendous appreciation for the way that, for all of my gripes about Mac OS. And the ways that I worry that it's gotten worse in recent years, philosophically, um, it it made me appreciate how how much work and constant effort it takes for Apple not to have ended up with that sort of architecture of new crap built on top of old crap. I mean, it's actually not that different of a... Uh of a mechanism that's causing those two things to happen. The results are obviously very different, but the mechanism is basically companies preserving their value proposition. And the value proposition of Windows is, or was, and still mostly is, we make this operating system that will run on an entire market of hardware, right? So we, Microsoft, don't make the hardware, didn't used to. Uh, And lots of people can make the hardware, and it's diverse. And Windows derives its value from being able to be the platform that uh, that is built on all that hardware. 
And Apple and Apple and Microsoft have been defending that value proposition, saying we're not going to change our software in a way that chops off one of the limbs of our value proposition of saying, you know, the reason we are valuable is because you can just buy a PC from whoever you want and Windows will run on it. So anything we do to break backward compatibility or do something in a way that some old crappy Dell notebook won't be able to handle or anything that requires us to tell every single hardware manufacturer to do something different going forward because we really want to do it. It's like pulling teeth. Microsoft has done that plenty of times, like changing the driver model and everything, but it's so painful for them because they have to convince every PC, quote unquote, PC hardware maker in the world to make those changes. So Microsoft is not going to do what Apple does, which is like, well, we're just making some changes and everyone will deal with it because that would, that it would have slowly eroded or if not, you know, very quickly destroyed their entire value prop. And Apple is the reverse. Their value proposition is we make the whole widget, everything works together seamlessly. And in exchange, you know, that it makes everything simpler and more reliable or whatever. And so when we change things, and we say, guess what? From now on, we're using Intel processors. We convert the whole line and we just do it. From now on, we're using this weird Unix-based thing that came from Next. And we're get, the classic is gone and the new thing is here. And doing that seems daring and you know bold and, wow, Microsoft would never do that because they're wimpy. But really, Apple is doing what it has to do to maintain the advantages of its vertical integration, right? So it, in both cases, it would be... Like, both companies are disinclined to do the opposite, not because either one of them is brave, but because they're both cautious about keeping their good thing going. They're just very different good things. Now, in the modern era, with Microsoft making its own hardware and things changing rapidly, that, and, you know, Microsoft generally focusing more on services and less on Windows and all that other stuff, and more on Office and less on, you know, Windows Office, that may be changing. But for Apple, it's still the same deal. Uh, they make the whole widget. Now they're making the chips in the widget. They're going even harder in the same direction they've always been going. There is the one, There are certain areas where I feel like Apple is sort of doing the new city built on top of the old city. And it's, it's sort of a disdain for the user. And... Well, but before you even get into that, right. like obviously Next is built on top of BSD, right. and then Mac OS X is built on top of Darwin, which is you know like so there is uh, Mac OS X specifically was a city built on top of a city. It was a GUI built on top of Unix, and you know a different GUI built on top of Unix, and then we had Mac OS, the Carbon APIs and everything built on top of AppKit, which is built on top of BSD, but. That's not quite the same thing as like like there's no digging in Mac OS 10 where you'll find classic Mac OS lurking underneath, right? right. So that's that's the difference. Uh, I, the the closest you can get is probably Apple Script and OSA, which is like of all the things that have lived on from 1993, who, who would have guessed <laughs> it was Apple Script and OSA, which is just mind boggling to me. Um, you don't you've you don't really write Apple Script, right? Not a fan. No. But do you ever have to use do you ever use it? I have. I've used it. I've you know, I've used it to get things done that that was the most direct way to accomplish, but I just as a programmer, I just it rubs me the wrong way. I've never been able to get into it. I find it harder than actual programming just because it doesn't match with my programmer mindset. And and like the, and the whole t even back in the day when it was the modern technology, the whole thing of scripting dictionaries and Apple events just didn't didn't match the way I thought about automating things. So I always found it frustrating. Uh, I've I've been using it a lot just in recent weeks because I it's like one of those things where once you dig something out, 
then it's like, ah, it's, well, I've got it out. I might as well. And I've been like crossing off a list of very old years long to do's of little Apple script things I wanted to make or ones I wrote many years ago and wanted to edit. Um, and a couple of them involve me doing stuff in Perl and then calling to OSA script from Perl with the, you know, the shell script, uh, OSA script command. And like to show a notification, like here's a little thing I have in Perl that I run all the time, but wouldn't it be nice to have like a notification center thing, do this, show this thing. And you can do that by calling out to the OSA script thing, but I'm mixing, uh, I'm like BB edit in one window, writing Perl. This is literally something happened to me today. I, I, it's such a impotent mismatch of styles of programming where I'd, (laughs) I had written in Perl, my whatever variable name to the value instead of an equal sign <laughs> because in apple script you don't assign with an equals you say set the mm-hmm. variable name to the value and it it i i it was one and it was one of those bugs where i wrote it but also wrote a couple of other lines and then i started getting an error from perl but it was so confusing to the perl parser that the error message was no help at all. It gave me the line and I could look at the line, but I was in such a weird half writing Apple script, half writing a normal, here I am calling Perl a normal programming language, but you know, at least it uses equals for assignment that I couldn't see the two that I wrote the word TO <laughs> as an assignment. And then I was like, Oh, I need to stop. But anyway, yeah. that, that's switching back and forth in languages always does that. Like, and yeah. I imagine for people who are, are multilingual in spoken languages, there's the same problem. But I get it all the time programming languages because being a web programmer, uh, you're always dealing with multiple languages. I mean, for the longest time, it was JavaScript on the client and something right. other than JavaScript on the server. These days, you can't actually do JavaScript on the server and the client. But there are other, still other things in the mix there, like you know CSS and all the other stuff. So having to be multilingual is kind of a requirement but yeah it can really screw you up if you forget where you are like even just switching back and forth from swift to anything else the the whole semicolons at the end of the line thing can really throw you off <laughs> that's that's definitely true all of a sudden one well it's does swift let you put semicolons and they don't do anything or no they, they I, bark I, I i don't rarely i can't remember the, uh what what it does because my failure mode is i stop putting the semicolons in all the other languages i don't right. start putting them in swift i i just i just did that today i was writing Perl code today didn't have a semicolon tried to run it it's complaining i'm like what the hell it's perfectly fine oh the semicolon yeah. well and in hindsight too i mean it's i i don't write swift i can't do a whole podcast talking about swift fairly but it it's true that the the C derivatives that all put semicolons at the end of their lines, it it's very crufty. And it's all in the, it, it just to support the idea that you can cram more than one line of code onto an actual line of your text editor, which is very, very bad idea. I mean, and it makes the compiler, writing the compiler easier, right? right. That's, you know, that's really what it is. It's like, uh, it's not like the secret technology didn't exist to not have semicolons, but it just makes it so much easier that I can imagine if you were back in the 70s saying, we're going to make a language and, you know, it's not going to be line based. So we can't just use new lines as the end of the line. Uh, but we have to have some delimiter, right? Because if it's not a new line, it's got to be like a semicolon. And someone would say, well, you can figure out when the line is over based on, you know, the syntax of a language. Because if you know, like, uh, the next 
thing that you see is not something that could possibly be a continuation of the previous statement, you found the barrier. And like, why would we do that complexity? That someone would say, well, yeah, you're right. We could do that. But why would we do that to ourselves? Why don't we just pick a character like new line or semicolon? And then the parser will know when it's over instead of us having to guess. Uh, but, you know, things have changed so much since then that in a more modern language like Swift, we, we understand now that like, the the pain of the compiler designer is nothing compared to the pain of all the people who are going to write programs because the compiler is written relatively few times by a relatively small number of people and the programs are written by millions and are constantly being written and rewritten. So they say, yeah, we'll put the complexity in the compiler. We'll do the work to figure out where one statement ends and another statement begins because it is a solvable problem because the language is not infinite. We know what can be a continuation of the previous statement and what can't be. And we'll do it for the programmer, and that saves a lot of typing and a lot of pinkies on the semicolon. If you didn't know any better, you would think that the standard QWERTY US keyboard layout that puts semicolon right under one of your fingers all the time, that the the keyboard layout was made by somebody who was programming C or a C derivative language. Because programmers who write in those languages use semicolon all the time at the end of terminating every line. Whereas normal people, most normal people, even people who write all day long, maybe even people who call themselves writers. I I think Kurt Vonnegut famously, he has like a good rant about the semicolon that he, he he thinks it's terrible that you should never use it. And it's pretentious that, but there's your pinky finger under this punctuation character that most people never literally never use. Don't even yeah. know. Don't even know the rules of grammar when they're supposed to use it ostensibly. Because the QWERTY layout has many, many quirks that <laughs> don't seem to make sense when you examine them. But it's like just you, one of those things. He gets its foot in the door, and that's just the way the keyboards are, and we just deal with it. <laughs> the semicolon has to be one of the strangest quirks of the keyboard, though. I mean, that, that's good for you know it was a happy accident for programmers, and maybe that's why they pick semicolon. I don't know the history of uh, whoever first picked semicolon as a, as a separator, but. Uh, you know, underscore requiring the shift key is is kind of counterbalances that a lot. <laughs> well, if anything, you would think just logically, if you could redo it, even if you were only going to make just one tiny tweak, you would just change the colon and the semicolon in terms of making the colon just your pinky and semicolon the shift variant. Oh, that, that, they probably would have picked colon as the. I, I don't know what they would have done. <laughs> colon doesn't really work as the statement ending because it has no. other meanings in languages. I wonder. I, I don't think that's why they picked the semicolon. I think it's you know because dot was too valuable even in C. To, they had to use you know couldn't use period, but you know exclamation mark would have made it look like you were angry at the end of every line. So you know, I, I, Le- you know. I don't know if lexically is the right word. What linguistically, semantically, semicolon makes sense, right? It's like it's sort well, of the I, end. I mean, I mean, a period would make sense, right? But I'm, <laughs> you know, but period was too valuable. You know, they wanted to use it for something else. Well, I mean, I mean, they use period for decimal point, but uh, like in in modern languages, right. they all they all use period where C decided to use hyphen and then right. shift for the for the greater than sign, right? Right to make a little arrow, right. And no one wants to type that anymore. Modern languages that said are not not all about typing little arrows. They just use the dot for that all the time. All right. Have you seen the uh, the programming fonts that use ligatures to combine hyphen greater yep. than to become a, an arrow ligature? It's terrible. I don't like it. Terrible idea. If you want to, I could see making a language that would make the actual Unicode right facing arrow an alternative 
to mm, I don't even like that. It's too hard to type. Well, as an alternative. Yeah, but but then you're editing someone's code and they decided to use that and now you feel like you have to match that and now you gotta figure right. out how to type that and you're copying and pasting. It's terrible. It's not it's not good. <laughs> Well, you could make like a macro that. I mean, the ligature is the worst of both worlds because no, you got right. the ugly looking thing, but really under the covers, it's just a hyphen and a greater than sign, right? But it looks like oh, just and they're ugly. They they're they don't look right. They don't look like code, right? And then it's masking the actual characters that you've written. Like ligatures are for things where you want beautiful typography right. for artistic purposes, and code is not that. Right. Well, the whole reason and the whole reason that. Most people like to write their code in a still even today in a monospace font is not because it looks better, but because it makes it so so much easier to make sure that oh yes, this is a single quote and then another single quote. It's not a double quote because they're spaced, you know, and, and that you can you get the clarity of of you know punctuation characters don't just fly by; they they all get lots of emphasis. Yeah, it's predictability and consistency. That's why they go with monospace. Now, there, there have been at various times fads of trying to program proportional fonts, but the the, the, the ability to <laughs> yeah, well, no program, but the ability to look at code and and see because it's so important that it be unambiguous to you about what characters are actually up there. Any kind of ambiguity, even if it quote unquote looks better from an artistic perspective, is terrible for code. So you, you want to know that every one of those characters is going to take up the same amount of space and you can look at it. And this is setting aside things like Python where you're lining things up with the white space, but just even just regular programming language, like you said, there should be no ambiguity. You, sh- you should be able to tell a single quote from, you know, a double quote from two single quotes in a row completely unambiguously because if you can't, God, this, it's hard enough to find bugs like legit, regular, just human error bugs, let alone sneaky ones like that. That's why well, there's all these, you know, troll memes where people will put... Uh, there's some character that looks exactly like a semicolon but isn't a semicolon in Unicode. There's a bunch of yeah. characters that are like that. We just went through that with the with the title of that uh, that yeah. weird uh, game engine app that shows yeah. your weather in a big 3D font, like the little lowercase letter A that didn't look like an A. Yep, yep. The no, it's the uh, the no more. I haven't linked to it from Daring Fireball yet, but by the time this podcast airs, I will have so I can talk about it in the past sense. But the Andy Works apps uh, under the banner, no more boring apps. They're, 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 I wonder how many people have noticed. I haven't seen anybody on Twitter complaining yet, but it, like the weather app in on the iOS home screen just says weather, but the A is a, in type of typography terms, a single story A, just like a sort of what you think of little kids write. It's a circle with just a bar next to it, as opposed to the sort of fancier double story A. Um, and San Francisco, the Mac, or actually Apple's system font everywhere, has an alternate glyph, like an open type feature. And I guess it's not really open type because it's true type, but it's the same sort of thing. And if you're in an app that lets you have control, you know, like Adobe apps or the typography panel in some of the AppKit apps that give you the alternative glyphs for fancy fonts that have multiple versions of letters like A, you can do that. But how did, how in the world did he specify it on the home screen? And we figured out that it's it's just the Unicode. What's the, what was the code? It's like 0251. Uni- Unicode code point. Yeah, there's a Unicode code point to specify an A like that. And the it looks clever because if you notice it, it's like, huh, he's got, the different lowercase a's in the app names, 
But the the downside is if you go to search for apps and type W E, you can't type it. Yeah, if you type W E, it shows up. But once you get to W E A, it no longer shows up because it's not really an A. Yeah, I mean, really, the search should be doing so. There's some kind of right. normalization or folding to try to match that the same way it does case folding, but it's actually a pretty hard problem, and th- and that's yeah. why the trolls of like putting in the was it the German question mark looks like a semicolon or something right. something like that, and people's code won't compile and they'll stare at it for hours and say, but it's right, it's perfectly fine. What is it complaining yeah. about? Right, and then you know, eventually, if you debug code long enough, you'll start doing things that make no sense to you, like deleting the line and retyping it, and that will actually solve the problem, and you won't understand why. It's because you deleted the fake semicolon or replaced right, it with right, the real one. Right. right. But you could have programming languages that are smart enough to do this. The other one is people, I used to say some Windows, Windows, people programming on Windows platforms would do this all the time. They would copy and paste something out of Word or out of like an email from Outlook on Windows, and it would be filled with non-breaking spaces. Yes. And, pro- and the <laughs> compiler would choke to death on the non-breaking spaces, but they look exactly the same as spaces in your text editor. They would just, you know, it's, yeah, that's, that's, you don't that's why BB has Zap Gremlins, right? <laughs> you don't see it anymore because I think it was so pernicious. But in the earlier days of the web, when it was CSS either wasn't even invented yet or wasn't taken over, people would indent code like code examples on a web page with non-breaking spaces because it was the only way to 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 get it to work because you white space collapses in HTML and then you oh okay there's a line there's a couple of lines of code that'll work you copy you paste and then it, your whole program falls apart and then you realize that it was because you copied and pasted non-breaking spaces yeah and the compiler would give you some error message that made no sense no it sense say, at all. it wouldn't say there's a non-breaking space it right. would just say some other error like on the like yeah, the, the message wouldn't be helpful. I mean, and, and you could put code in pre-tags or whatever, but people wanted it to be a nice font and all this other stuff. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that gets to my point, though, is that some of the changes to Mac OS over the years that are unpleasant, but I completely understand, is the ways that the world has changed for the worse and that the broader world of scammers, if not outright criminals, you know, who have caught on to things. And one of them is, uh, you know, the same thing with the alternate glyphs where, where remember when there were like domain names that would look like Yahoo, except instead of uh, two O's, it was like some weird alternate glyph and Unicode that looked like O's. But how in the world is a normal person supposed to know that's not yahoo.com? You know, it looks like it. And so all the browsers and everybody had to sort of go through this absolutely Byzantine normalization to make sure that spoof URLs or domain names, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't go through. Uh, and there's stuff, there's so much stuff in Mac OS 10 now that is sort of like that too. I mean, that's why all this security stuff has been added. I mean, just the way, uh, I guess that we kind of, Apple kind of bit the bullet in Catalina 1015 with a lot of this, where when you first updated to 1015, you'd get an awful lot of, oh, the first time you wanted to use your clipboard manager in every app, it would be like, oh, do you want to give permission to PasteBot to automate this? You have to, you know, go to system preferences and give it, uh, you know, the permission to control your screen, the accessibility thing. Um, and it's such a big if you, as long, you know, like as a normal longstanding Mac user, it's like you just want to do the stuff you've been doing on your Mac forever. And all of a sudden now it does feel like you're the John Hodgman character in that old, 
I'm a Mac, you're a PC ad where you're like caught in a loop of authorizing every single step of the way. But you know why they're doing it because if they didn't, there were scammy apps that were taking advantage of it. Yeah, there's a, there's a bright side to this too, though. Like Windows went through the same thing. They went through it a little bit earlier. But like the the cool technical side of it is, uh, you know, not just security requirements on apps and having them ask for permissions, but things, all, all the most dangerous things on the Mac have been redesigned to be, and on Windows, have been redesigned to be less dangerous. The the biggest and most recent one, I think, on both platforms, that Windows, again, did it before the Mac, I think, uh, is user space drivers. Get uh, third-party software out of the kernel. If you just want to plug in a new mouse or something or a webcam, you shouldn't have arbitrary code from a third party running in kernel mode where it can do essentially anything to your entire system, right? Uh, and get you know getting all those all the, and all the processes that already were running in user space to put them in sandboxes, right? To basically say there is less that you know there's less that can really take down your computer. And and th- these days we don't think about that too much. Like oh. You know, kernel panics are rare, and Apple hates kernel panics, and they're disastrous. But nowadays, Apple is really trying to get everybody out of the kernel except for Apple. And so, yeah, you still have kernel panics, and they're 100% Apple's fault then. It's much better than having kernel panics because you bought a new mouse at, you know, Egghead, and it came with a driver, (laughs) and now that's kernel panicking your computer, right? So, and, And it takes a long time to engineer that the right way to get all the drivers or even the trivial stuff like USB peripherals out of the kernel while still allowing them to have good performance and be able to do all the stuff they're doing. Same thing with network filters and and the new OS being all in user space. And then sandboxing for all of Apple's demons that run all the stuff, trying to make them be not only separate processes, which happened years ago, but separate processes that have almost no permission to do anything except for the one thing they need to do. Like if, if this process never needs to access the network, why does it have access to the network? If this process never needs to access the file system, it shouldn't have access to the file system. And all of that makes our Macs better and more stable in the long run. In the short run, it's like, oh, they just ripped out the whole driver system and replaced it with the user space one, and now all the scraps buggy and Bluetooth doesn't work, right? Right. So that feels bad. But in the long run, that is good, and it's the type of good that doesn't come with uh, permission dialogues, right? Because you know, you you know, Bluetooth or whatever comes and it's pre-installed and it works, and you have no idea whether it's running code inside the kernel or not. Uh, but eventually, uh, once it settles down stability-wise in terms of the Bluetooth part functioning, it's no longer going to be have the capability to take down your whole computer, right? It will only have the capability to screw up Bluetooth, which is bad. But I think they'll work that out. So. I'm mostly optimistic about all those changes. There, there are bumps in the road where maybe they're asking in this dialogue too much, or maybe it's too hard to allow it. Like they don't want to do the Windows thing, which is what the ad was making fun of, which is bring up a dialogue and just have a button that lets you proceed and give permission. Apple makes you dismiss the dialogue and then makes you go to a whole other application on your own, maybe with some assistance from a very clever Mac program, and do a thing somewhere else and come back. Right. Like, they make it enough work so that you can't just go, okay, 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 because that would defeat the entire security purpose. So everyone would just be go, allow, 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 <laughs> which is kind of what they do on, on iOS. But right. iOS is so locked down from the beginning that you can really allow, allow, and yeah, you'll probably leak your personal information, but there's never been anything an iOS app can do to, like, kernel panic your phone, right? Or at least right. if that happens, it's not the app's fault, it's Apple's fault right. doing that. And one of, I, and I don't blame them for it. I don't blame them for making you do that and go to system preps and go to security and privacy and do it. What I do blame them for is that they haven't gone and really thoroughly redone the interface for that 
in system preferences. Like you wind up with these little tiny unresizable panes, like for here's my list for location services. And I've got, I don't know, uh, every app that's ever asked for location services is listed here. But the, the little tiny pane in the security preference, the, it only shows four apps at a time, and there's no way to resize it. It's I, yeah, I do, I do. Uh, I don't know if I appreciate this. It could be an accident. But when I would look at stuff like this, like this is a thing that I definitely would have talked about if I was doing reviews. Scroll your uh, list of location services all the way up to the top. Notice that the the tiny little porthole that we're viewing through does not exactly hold an integer number of items. And right. that's to give you a visual right. clue that there's more. But that clue depends on the next icon being tall enough to peek its little head out. Because <laughs> right. if it doesn't, it just looks like a screwed up window that doesn't fit the the number of items, right? So I, I think someone is trying to do the right thing, which is you really should, sh- in this stupid era where the scroll bars are hidden by default, unless you have a mouse attached or whatever with a scroll wheel, you have no way to know that there's any more. And I've seen this failure mode. I've seen this failure mode and tried to coach my parents through doing things like this. They go to the thing. I'm like, okay, I see a list, but I don't see that thing on the list. I'm like, scroll the list. Like, scroll what list? See the list of things that says, you know, these four apps? There's more underneath. Well, how was I supposed to know that? Sometimes I can say, well, you can see the head of the little icon poking out. But other times I'd say, you just need to know that sometimes you can scroll. Or I just turn and make the scroll bars be always on. But either way, it's. I, I hope someone was trying to do the right thing. But you're totally right that... This interface is suboptimal, let's say. And it's an example, and you're probably not going to like this, but I feel like it's an example of where web UI, web page, web app UI, generally does this better in terms of the mechanics, if not the specifics of the UI elements. Web UIs, if they have a long list, they give you a real-time filter at the top of it, right? And they give you an indication of how long the list is, and they give you way more information and a way more flexible thing, because there's lots of things on the web that give you long lists that they want you to quickly filter or find something on. And in the dark corners of the Mac, yeah, scroll view is fine. That's all they need. It's like, if you know there's going to be 50 items there, give me the little quick search thing. Give me a little information that says 55 items showing items 5 of 25 or whatever. Lots of sort of web UI conventions that we're used to on the web are actually useful if backported to native UI to help us deal with the same problem, which is a big list of things. I don't disagree with that. I mean, that certainly isn't one of my beefs with web apps. You know, I, 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 I think that it is, it honestly feels to me almost like a 20 year old idiom that's just been cemented is the idea of little, like you called it a little portal, <laughs> like a fixed sized list that in an unresizable window and it's just laid out like this. It just feels like something from a, a bygone era. Like, I mean, it feels like a Web 1.0 thing back when web pages were not as – it's hard to believe that the, right. someone had to make a word called responsive, which meant that web apps changed size based on the window size. Right. You'd, from from day one, Mac UIs have been essentially responsive in that you change the window size and they would expand to fill it. It's just that system preferences in particular has been – you know, we inherited it from Next and it's changed a lot over the years. But one thing that hasn't changed is – 
it's a single window and you type on an icon and the contents of that window change. And even though the height of the window changes, the width does not, and it's not resizable. Can you imagine a version of system preferences that was resizable? I have seen no reason why we can't have that. Like we right. have the technology to lay out <laughs> to lay out scroll views in a resizable window, I swear, but no one has ever bothered to do that to system preferences because it would, I don't know, it would maybe break the layout of the main page and they'd have to make the icons bigger. Yeah, but I don't know. It's just, it's a corner of macOS, and there are a lot of them, that hasn't gotten that much attention because it works. And, and I think it was okay back when, you know, people were not expected to visit here very often, but starting in Catalina, everybody's visiting this particular preference pane a whole lot. So they really should reconsider the UI of, of system preferences, essentially. Like, there, there are tons of ways to do system preferences better than it's done now, and it's just you know, hasn't been changed, hasn't been changed in what? I'm not going to say 20 years because they did change it from like, I don't know if you remember, but what it looked like in 10.0 or the betas, it was totally weird, but it hasn't changed in many, many years, let's say. Yeah. And it, especially with a lot of the new security stuff, it's like one of the really neat innovations that Next came up with and carried through was the column view. And it's an interesting way of showing hierarchy and it really shined at its brightest with the original iPhone, right? Because the general metaphor for most iPhone apps, right from the original iPhone in 2007, was effectively column view, except that it would only show you one column at a time because the phone was tall and skinny and very small. But you'd go to, you know, just look at system prefs or look at mail where you'd open mail and to this day you open it up and here's a list of your accounts and you click an account and then there's a list of mailboxes and you click a mailbox tap a mailbox and it just keeps pushing over left to right as you go down the hierarchy whereas in system preferences the hierarchy isn't indicated in any logical way at all. It's all just sort of abstract where you go to security and privacy at the top level, but you're picking from a list of icons. Then you have to go to privacy, which is a tab at the top, which is a totally different thing you're picking. And then you, you've got a list on the left side of the different privacy things to go to, which is how you get to the little tiny four row window on the right. It's like every single layer of the hierarchy is is a completely different UI paradigm. And that's just that's, security and privacy. All the right. other preference panes are totally different. They do their own thing. <laughs> right. You never know what you're going to find when you click one of those icons. Right. So there's an area where I, I would have a complaint. Let me take a break here. Thank our next sponsor. It's our good friends. Longtime sponsor. They're back. It's Hover. Look, Hover has been a sponsor here for a long time. They are a great domain name registrar. They have over 300 domain name extensions now, which is mind-blowing to me because I remember when there were like five. When you want to start a new brand online, you want to register a new website, just a new domain name just to get your email, they have it. No matter what you want to build, there's a domain name waiting for it. You'll find excellent tech support For any questions you may have, their support team does not try to upsell you. They are not like other domain name registrars. They All they want to do is they just want to help you get online, get a good domain name, answer your questions. They have free Whois privacy protection. They have a very, very clean user interface, super easy to understand. Monthly sales on popular top-level domain names, everything you'd want. Great support, no upsells. 
great prices, great support, a great search interface. So like if your first choice for whatever your domain you want.com isn't available, they show you great suggestions for what might be available. It's just a great service. They also have great two-factor authentication support to get that set up, which probably recommendable for just about everything you use, but for your domain name registrar is certainly one of the things you want to lock down the best. So everything you'd want. 300 top-level domain names to choose from, great prices. You can get your next domain name by going to hover.com slash talk show. Hover, H-O-V-E-R.com slash talk show. Get a 10% discount with that referral link on all new purchases. So save 10% with hover.com slash talk show. My thanks to Hover. Uh, So zooming out again, big picture. Couple years ago, let's say leading up to that crazy, in hindsight, roundtable thing that me and Panzerino and a few others got invited to when they reset the uh, uh, said, "Hey, we're going to do a Mac. We we have ideas for an iMac Pro, and we're gonna we're gonna start all over right now with a new Mac Pro, which you're probably podcasting on right now, right? I sure am. There was a, a, a I wouldn't say it was a consensus, but certainly a very uh, strong contingent of people who thought that Apple was showing Mac OS the door. And oddly to me, often based on quotes from Tim Cook claiming that he does all of his work on iPads, um, which it, it like to his credit, one of the great things about Tim Cook as CEO of Apple is he has seemingly zero ego whatsoever about the fact that he's not a product person, right? Like he's replacing arguably the best product person CEO of all time, certainly in tech. And, you know, you saw it with Scully, right? Scully came from Pepsi and Apple had good years under Scully, but he obviously, you know, like the way he kind of spearheaded the Newton and pushed that out the door, Seemingly, you know, not to to psychoanalyze him from afar, but it seemed like, you know, he wanted to put his mark on product. Tim Cook doesn't really have that. So I wouldn't take Tim Cook's... I think Tim Cook just likes to say good things about Apple products, and that's why he says good things about the iPad. And I'm sure he does use his iPad a lot, but I never, ever took it as meaning that Apple had a vision of pushing the Mac out the door and we'd all be using iPads for everything. Well, we should be kind of thankful that that Cook isn't like, didn't want to be that kind of product person because one possible vision that a new CEO of Apple post jobs could have had is exactly what everyone thought he was going to do or feared he was going to do, which is just one big unified OS based around the one on the iPhone because that's our bread and butter now. Right. And that slowly phase out the Mac. And if we say, think of almost any other CEO that would have come in after jobs, if they were the type that said, I'm really going to put my stamp on this company by driving it, uh, driving it the same way jobs did through product decisions and product vision, that is kind of like the obvious product vision. Like, you know, if you, if you, were to look back at the company and say, okay, if I have to reassess, what should we do? Um, even Jobs himself has, you know, voiced it in the quote that's, uh, I have no idea where it's from, but it's like, what I would do is, you know, uh, think about what's going to come next after the Mac. You know what I mean? What, what, what quote am I trying to remember? You know uh, uh, I, 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 I know what you're talking about. It was sort of like, 
milk what they've got for all it's worth and then move on to the next big thing right he's got a, he had a bunch of quotes about not not dwelling on your accomplishments and moving on to the next thing but he had one that was even more specific about the mac um and so i feel like that if if he had if he had felt like i need to i need to really just change the direction like a lot of ceos do this to assert themselves to sort of put a stamp on the company and make it their own whatever the previous guy did especially if he was super famous and super successful you got to do something different otherwise it just seems like you're steering a ship that you know is going in a direction pointed to by somebody else but tim cook hasn't felt that at all really uh, and it's I've, you know it's so hard to tell inside apple but it feels to me that he has you know he has the things that he cares about and he's always been steering those and continues to steer those but those aren't things related to the products that apple makes like you know what kind of product how many ports should it be on this laptop should we make laptops right. anymore like that's not it it's all about you know supply chain and i think even the services stuff like the sort of economics and big picture manufacturing supply chain inventory management sales channels all of that like that was always his and it still is his and it's a strength and he sticks to that and so what that has left it feels like to me from the outside is the the lieutenants on down inside apple the various i'm not gonna say warring factions but the various subsets of apple that have their own opinions about product direction have been sort of fighting it out through consensus eventually always bubbling up to tim to probably to give a go no go yes no or point in this direction or that or kick out forestall and keep eye or whatever the big decisions are but still the direction is being set by the strongest factions below Tim in the company, some of which are populated with old people from Next, some of which are populated from classic macOS long timers, some of which are populated with people who never knew Apple before the iPhone, right? And the all and there's the iPod people and all those factions are all mixing together and fighting it out to try to set a direction, as opposed to a top-down thing where Tim Cook says one day, you know, the Mac is going in the gutter, the iPad and the iPhone of the future make it happen. Like that didn't happen even the mac roundtable thing i feel like like the, the the closest tim cook came to making a decision was not making a decision to can the mac which meant the mac had to continue but then without a strong direction to say let's make sure that the mac continues to be successful by these criteria merely continuing to have macs that the people below him said were the right thing to do for the mac that you know with tim cook going it seems reasonable. It turns out they took a wrong turn and they had to backtrack and do something different. And I don't think without the outside input, Tim Cook would have necessarily seen anything particularly wrong with the Mac to lead to that roundtable discussion. But the customers did and the people who ran all the Mac stuff did. And so and that sort of, you know, again, probably had to bubble up to Tim and say, you know, why are people complaining about the Mac? Like, I, it seems fine to me, but apparently some people don't like it. Please fix it. And then you get the roundtable. Here's the quote from Jobs. I, I doesn't have a date. Uh, it's from Goodreads. But I, it had to be 1994 or 1995 because it wouldn't make any sense uh, before or after. Or I guess right. if, yeah, it had to be before he came back. If I were running Apple, I would milk the Macintosh for all it's worth. And get busy on the next great thing. The PC wars are over. Done. Microsoft won a long time ago. Which is funny because now you look back at that, it actually was wrong. <laughs> I mean, but it was right in the way that he meant it. And right. if you come back to Apple, the move is not let's get 90% PC market share. Right. Which Apple never did and right. never probably never will do and didn't try to do. And Apple did get working on the next big thing, whether the iPod the iPod and eventually right. the iPhone. Right. But it also didn't get rid of the Mac. And part of that, I think, is because, you know, 
Jobs' baby. Part of that is just because Jobs liked Max, <laughs> right? And so if he got rid of them, he'd have to use a PC, and he wouldn't like that. And he wasn't going to be Tim Cook getting everything done on his iPad. Uh, but, you know, it's just like the people at Apple liked the Mac and thought it should continue to be a thing. But that was not, you know, and then you can say that wasn't the focus of the company. Jobs' big comeback was a Mac, the iMac, right? That's right. turned the company around with a Mac because in the short period of time, that's what you've got. That's what you can do. So he was absolutely like right in the sense that he meant that phrase and acted accordingly, but never took the step that people would you know, get from that phrase, which is like, oh, I guess that means he just wants the Mac to go away. Right. Steve Jobs absolutely did not want the Mac to go away, and it didn't go away. And Tim Cook probably could take it or leave it, and so it stayed, and it floundered a little bit, but now it seems like it's turning around. Flash forward to just like two or three WWDCs ago. I think it was right before the introduction of Catalyst, so it was probably two of them ago. Um, and Federighi's on stage and has, in his introduction to Catalyst, the UI kit to make Mac apps framework, and which is, in other words, a way to port your iOS apps to the Mac with however minimal the change is, certainly far more minimal than rewriting them in, in AppKit. And it was a, are we moving towards a single unified operating system and it's WWDC. They've got bigger screens than they even have at the at, at Steve Jobs Theater, and a giant screen with the word "no" dropping down in an animation. <laughs> and even still, lots of people <laughs> like. I really felt like that was a moment where Apple really broke a little character and was like, "Look, we know a lot of you think that's what we're doing. That's what Microsoft seems to be doing, but they don't have a phone." We're not doing that. We really aren't. And then lots of people are like, yeah, that's what they're doing. They're they're going to just have one operating system and it's going to be iOS. It's like, it feels like there's no way they can refute it. And they're trying to, didn't really get away with it. Didn't didn't really do anything to quell it. Yeah, I mean, that, again, that, that's clearly a discussion that had to be had inside Apple. It's just a question of what level it's at. And I feel like that, that debate of, hey, what should we do with our whole platform story probably is the type of thing that took place with, I forget if uh, Bertrand was still the head when this was taking place, but eventually with uh, Federighi, like whoever's in charge of all the software platforms at Apple and all of that person's uh, lieutenants and vice presidents or whatever, you got to hash that out and say, what are we, what's our OS strategy for the next 10 years or whatever? What are we going to do? Are we going to merge into one big thing or are we going to keep them separate? And they had that debate and the decision they made is we're going to keep them separate. And, if everyone on the outside is like, are you going to merge? Are you going to merge? But people on the outside didn't participate in those debates. And I'm sure that decision was pitched to Tim Cook. Tim Cook has to know, hey, what's the deal with the software platform? And they have to say, here's what we've collectively decided and here's why. And Tim Cook has to say, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Do that or disagree, right? But I don't think Tim Cook is up there saying, I have the vision for right. our software platforms for the next 15 years. Here's what we're going to do. We're not going right. to merge them. We're going to merge them or whatever, right? Um, but even today, as the, you know, the reason he had to say that is with the Catalyst thing. I think on, on ATP, I described the introduction of Catalyst as an extinction-level event for Coco or for you know, AppKit at that point because there are so many more UIKit developers. And, okay, we're not merging OSs, but there's two angles in that. One, the OSs were never really... Unmerged, like the whole point right. is that the iPhone OS was quote unquote to quote Jobs based on OS ten, whatever the hell OS ten was in his mind, right? right it's right. Darwin under there. Right. It's BSD Darwin. It's the foundations of the thing. The iPad runs it. The Mac runs it. The phone runs it. Right? 
The things built on top of it vary, but there's tons of common components. If Apple had, let's pretend Apple had uh, built the iPhone based on that PixOS platform that uh, that ran the iPod. Right. Right. If they had done that, and then at some point they had said, guess what? We're, we're not using PixOS on the iPhone anymore. Now we're going to be using a variant on OS X. The story would have been Apple merges Mac and iOS operating systems. But because they started with that basically merged foundation, now what we say when we mean merge is like, well, it's just the same operating system like Windows 8. It's just Windows 8, Windows 8, Windows 8, Windows 10, Windows 10, Windows 10. It's just the same name and it runs everywhere. And it's like, you're really starting to get into a place where the differences start to become more academic. Yes, we all know if you're a developer, AppKit versus UIKit versus Swift UI and that muddies the water. And, and the operating systems themselves have details that are different. And, you know, the, the phone doesn't use swap, right? And like all this, there's so many things that are different. But fundamentally, Apple doesn't have a split OS strategy. They don't even have a split OS strategy like Microsoft used to when it had NT versus the 95 thing, right? right. They have always had a single OS foundationally strategy across their entire line. And it's just the level where it varies is the part where the, the tension is. And on that level, Apple has been, quote unquote, merging them in one particular direction by making it possible to write UI kit on the Mac, whereas you couldn't before, by making it possible to literally run iOS applications on your Mac by using the same CPU architecture on the Mac as they do. And notice the direction that arrow is always going. It's always going, whatever we were doing on the phone and the iPad, bring that over to the Mac and much, much less of the opposite direction, right? So this whole debate about merging I think it means something in different in people's minds, but from a technical perspective, like from Federighi's point of view, they've been marching along a fairly a, a, another fairly obvious technological path to basically leverage their assets. We have millions of developers who know UIKit. Why shouldn't we let them write Mac apps more easily? We're really good at making CPUs for our phones and our iPads. Why shouldn't we use them in the Mac? It'll make our Macs better. While at the same time, not saying, oh, you're going to turn on your Mac and it's just going to be like, you know, launch pad and it's just going to look like a springboard filling your whole screen and you're going to touch your Mac and do all that stuff, right? That's the level consumers think. So when that big no comes down, it's trying to tell people it's still going to be a dock. It's still going to be a menu bar. You're going to have a mouse. It's, it's, it's a Mac, right? Meanwhile, every single technical person at Apple is essentially taking the best parts of all the OSs and combining them together to make them closer and closer to each other. I mean, like for crying out loud, running running phone apps natively on your Mac, right? And yet they can still have that big slide that says, no, we're not merging them, right? So right. it's really just a question of what level are we communicating, right? That no is communicating at one level, and I think it's saying the right thing for people operating on that level. But if you're a developer looking at how the OSs have been evolving towards each other, let's say, that doesn't conflict with the no and is in many ways comforting, but it does have ramifications. And so the ramification I was getting at with the extinction level event is there are so many more iOS programmers. And if you can use UIKit to write apps for the Mac, how long is it going to be before there are fewer and fewer people writing Mac apps with AppKit? And then the third one in the mix is there, well, is anyone using either of those APIs that are just using Electron doing everything with web apps to make everything cross-platform? So that battle is yet to be hashed out. It's going on right now. This is a hot war on all of our Macs. What API do I use to write apps for this Mac? What API is used to write the apps that I use every single day? And that still needs to sort itself out. Meanwhile, Apple can continue and insist, no, we're not We're not merging the OSs. And no, we're not taking away your menu bar and your dock, right? And the finder's still there. But that war is happening whether you want it or not. 
Yeah, I think it's uh, the way I see it, and I think it's what people miss is that it's less of a technical thing and more of a philosophical thing. That philosophically, the Mac is still a Mac, even if technically it's more and more alike, you know, processor architecture. UI kit now being a first class citizen that you can write apps for the Mac and literally being able to just double click an iPhone app on a Apple Silicon Mac and it launches, you know, which again, I, I, you don't, do you, do you have, what do you have a DTK? What's your Apple Silicon story? I've got an M1 MacBook Air and I've still got a DTK because Apple won't tell me how to return it. (laughs) They know how to make people angry. Yeah, we'll, but, we'll be talking to you in a few weeks. Just go find the box now. But uh, one of the things about the the double clicking, you know, just launching iOS apps. I guess they're not really iPhone apps; they're iPad apps right now. If it's an iPhone only app, I don't think it works. I think it has to be iPad. It's just, it's, this tells you how much I've used that feature on right. the M1 MacBook Air because my son uses that computer, and I always forget: is it the iPhone ones that run or the iPad ones? Technically speaking, there's no reason it couldn't be both of them, but I don't. Is, is it just the iPad ones? No, it's just iPad ones. But there's also it's also the case that for me personally, so few of the apps I use are iPhone only. But that's you know I don't know if that's the only reason why Instagram does just run. as Instagram. I was about to say that. Right. <laughs> I'm trying to think of other apps I use that don't have both it's just sort of a dying breed maybe maybe your banking app yeah probably i don't know but i actually don't even use my banking app is awful because i have at the same bank i have a business account and a personal account and the website swap between them (laughs) well yeah the web yeah you can't swap between them whereas the Mm -hmm. website you just log out and you log in with your other you know who's gonna have more than one banking i opened up a business banking account recently too and I picked the bank that was like that I can walk to from my house. That's exactly what I did. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh, that'll be super convenient. And their app sucks. No, it's <laughs> like the, those big banks that have a hojillion dollars and these giant national chains. I assume they have better apps, but this rinky-dink local bank just got one poor iOS programmer that worked on this once, like five years ago, and that's it. It's the, the my bank's website is pretty good. It's good enough that I don't complain, but. Uh... The, the app is not as good as the web, but I have to use the app to, uh, to cash checks with the camera. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but when they added that, they also added, it was like a $400 limit. Like, and <laughs> yeah, that's another thing I didn't for my business account. Like I set up this business account and I, I should have asked more closely what all the limits are. Cause a lot of things are tedious when there are limits and like number of transactions per day and maximum amount of the transactions and yeah, live and learn. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but I do think I, I, one of the interesting things about that feature is uh, to me, I, a, to me, it doesn't work very well. And I wrote about it when I wrote about the M1 Max that like the HBO app scrolls terribly, which apparently was maybe my fault because I turned on the weird feature where you get like multi touch support. And if you turn that off, scrolling works a little better. Um, but still, the HBO app, which you would think would be an app you might want to use because, you know, watching, you know, they don't have a, a, a Mac app, proper Mac app. You might want to watch your HBO shows and the app ought to be better than the website, but you couldn't go full screen. It was crazy. Like why, you know, of all the things that can't go full screen, why wouldn't a video app? But that's because they didn't really make it for that. It was just here, we'll let your iPad app run. And the iPad app thinks that the window is the screen. And so it only 
expands the video to fill the window, but the window can't go full, etc. It's just bad. Anyway, much, several months in now, here we are at the, towards the end of middle of February, end of February. I don't hear anybody ever talking about running those iOS apps on their M1 Max. I mean, it's kind of like the first round of Catalyst where all the apps were scaled by like, you know, yeah. 1.7% or 1.3% or whatever it was. I forget. Like, they weren't quite the right size and everything was a little janky. And then now there's the Mac native mode where you get to one-to-one scaling. Trying to trying to bridge the divide of these APIs without breaking compatibility is tricky. So that's why it wasn't an overnight, you know, overnight cascade of iOS apps. But I, re- I really think that the real competition is is these you know web-based apps electron-based cross cross-platform apps like because so many of the apps that we use every day um you know i i think about this every time i have a podcast with someone who's around for a long time i just think about all the hours i spent on my computer with no internet connection it's like seems like most <laughs> of my life it wasn't but like i know n- none of those apps had anything to do with the network now pretty much every single app i do every day is useless without the internet Right. Web browser, useless. Slack, useless. iMessage, useless. Like Skype, useless. Like these applications do not function without a network connection. And so in that world, it's no surprise that these cross-platform, you know, web-based frameworks uh, that run seemingly half of the apps I use these days are, you know, are a thing. And so that is Apple's real competition. So even though old old timers are fretting about AppKit versus UIKit versus Swift UI, Apple should be fretting about Electron versus everything. Yeah. Let me take a break because I want to pick up from that. It's too big a topic. Um, but let me thank our third sponsor. It's a fellow ATP sponsor, Flatfile. Uh, nearly everyone has dealt with formatting CSV or Excel files so the data can be correctly imported into their application. It's a pain. Companies of all sizes spend an exorbitant amount of effort trying to fix this problem. Typical solutions include CSV templates, emailing Excel files back and forth to each other, or hiring expensive implementation teams. Flatfile has the solution. They call the service Concierge, and it's a no-code collaborative workspace for onboarding structured data from spreadsheets that sort of thing. You invite your customers. They can join your employees, your customers, to securely import, format, and merge spreadsheet data. They don't have to fumble with weird uploads of files to FTP servers. You don't have to email sensitive Excel files back and forth and have them all different versions of them, all as email attachments, none of that. Flatfile's mission is to help companies spend less time formatting and importing spreadsheet data into their applications and just spend more time using it and more developer time not on importing data, but just actually working on features. Are you curious how they can help your business? Visit them at flatfile.io, flatfile.io. They've been sponsoring ATP for a while. Now they're sponsoring my show. I wonder why it took them so long. Seems like a mutual audience. Must be the funny name. Maybe. I I agree with you. I think that the existential threat to the Mac, I mean, for decades, I mean, literally since its inception, everybody always thought the the, the threat to the Mac, that the extinction threat was the PC. It was, it was DOS. I was going to say Windows, but in the, back in the day, it was DOS. Then it was Windows. Um, I mean, it was deafening by 1995, right? And when Windows 95 came out and which was actually better looking and worked better. And Apple was <laughs> mismanaged. 
to make a long story very short and sort of lost in the woods and at a, a, at a management level and at an engineering level had failed on several major, you know, need, they needed a next generation OS and their engineering efforts in those regards had failed. Um, and it's easy to, you know, you, you forget it, it. It's like Apple hasn't had like a failure like that in a very long time. But I mean, these were major operating system initiatives. Number one, it's a little bit telling that there were several of them <laughs> and they were concurrent. <laughs> Remember pink? Intelligent, mm-hmm. pink, Copeland. Uh, Copeland, yeah. uh, Gershwin. Wasn't Gershwin yep, the one that Gershwin. was going to come after Copeland? Yep. Uh, and, and, you know, times are different. They blabbed about them, showed screenshots, b- released screenshots of them to Macworld. Pu- published a book <laughs> sitting on the shelf next to me, Mac OS 8 Revealed. <laughs> described an operating system that Apple never released. Instead, I, they released a totally different operating system, also called Mac OS 8. Right. Uh <laughs> it you know that was it in some sense for a brief period of time there 95 96 even after the the next as i call it the reunification and they acquired next and had therefore owned a decent starting point for a next generation operating system it was still years away from actually being usable as a, something to uh, offered to the Mac community that was keeping Apple going, and they had one false start there too because right. Rhapsody was right. the, was the first run at that, and that didn't work. And then they released the weird Mac OS ten server that would you right. know no relation to the future operating system of the same name. But then the second try, they got it right. Yeah, maybe arguably the third try, really right. I, I Mac OS ten server wasn't really or whatever they called it. What did it was it just called? Rhapsody was the project, right? right. That was like Mac OS ten without carbon essentially and with a, a, a different idea of the UI. It was the next it was the next East take on what the next generation operating system to be. And the Mac market said, no thanks. Right. And then they released Mac OS ten server, which was essentially Rhapsody, but the server version of it. Right. Just because I feel like someone probably had that on their thing as like, oh, we should just get this out the door and accomplish it. But then the, they said, no, the new strategy is Mac OS X. And that was the one that stuck. And that was the one with Aqua and the whole right. nine yards. And that was the one with Carbon, right? right. Aqua and Carbon were the, yeah. and, you know, the porting of many more Mac APIs like QuickTime and stuff right. were the big things that differentiated Rhapsody from Mac OS X. But essentially, they said, we took a run at it with Rhapsody and nobody bit. And they basically did the same thing again, but with a few particularly strategic and important changes, but they got away with it. It's kind of like they tried to do Copeland and no one, and no one stuck. So they did like, the same thing as Copeland, but with like a different skin and one or two new APIs, and it worked. <laughs> it was interesting, though, seeing something that looked because the 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 skin of it, the theme, whatever you want to call it, was the Mac OS nine platinum, yeah, platinum, platinum, but it was better, right? It was it was like they'd improved a couple of the elements, uh, and funny enough, from where Mac OS ten wound up being with Aqua, it was snappier. It was it was a very snappy interface. Uh, uh, memory protection, right. the multitasking, but right. it was this weird looking next thing. And right. even as, even in the early versions of Mac OS X, you could switch the UI back to the next UI. Right, right. Which I think was what I think the people who actually used it did that. Whereas like we Mac <laughs> nerds were like, well, let's just kick the tires on this thing and see where they're going. Um, but there were a few years there where it did look like, yeah, the Mac might just get just become one of those things like the Amiga. Like, remember this? Remember the Mac? Oh, yeah, that was a good one. But then once they got their feet 
under them and and Mac OS 10 was clearly, you know, as as rough around the edges as it was when it finally shipped, it was clearly going in the right direction and made progress very steadily and it's like, yeah, there's a future here. The PC really was no never again the threat to the Mac. I mean, the threat to the Mac in my mind clearly is the the rise of web apps and the generational change in terms of how younger people view apps or what they do on computers. Yeah, or whether they want to use a computer at all for anything ever. Right. <laughs> yeah, so and I saw a uh an OS market share pie chart recently. I don't know. Was this on your side? Was it Stratechery? I don't even know. Where yeah, I, I don't things. think it was but, me. I don't. But I, anyway, um, it was a uh, the a current snapshot of quote unquote desktop OS market share. If you didn't see the same thing as me, what's your guess on the breakdown? Uh, well, who who is it supposedly polling the market as a whole? Yeah, I was like, I, I don't know if it was installed base or active users, yeah. but it was a current snapshot of 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 the market of like how many people out there. It was it was, it was basically OS market share. Uh, and are we counting? What are we counting Chrome it, as? Chrome Chromebooks? Are they counting as PCs? That's, as desktop, yeah. Uh, I would guess seven percent Mac, uh, fifty. 50, and the rest split evenly between Windows and Chrome. So like 40, 47, 47, and 7. You had a more pessimistic uh, picture than I did. Of course, I don't actually have this URL handy, but the, the upshot of it was that uh, Chrome OS had just overtaken the Mac. And oh, it, just the Mac. I thought maybe it was up there with Windows. I don't know. I just no, assume that there's a gazillion Chromebooks out there. That... Yeah, Chrome, Chrome OS had had overtaken the Mac here and there, going back and forth a few years, but now it's like decisively ahead of the Mac. So it's like, but but it wasn't that much bigger than the Mac, and then oh, there was now, the Mac, and then there was Windows. Yeah, I'm crazy. I, now that I think about it, it was an IDC thing. I bet if you Google and it was IDC. Now that I think about it, I saw this. It flashed by my somewhere on my news the other day. Yeah, I did see that. But it's such so different. Like, you know what's funny? We don't talk about market share anymore. Market share used to be like something that Mac users had to obsess over because it was always the argument as to why the platform was about to disappear because it had well, single. I, yeah, we, we would talk about market share if it wasn't for one weird thing about iOS, which is that that's where all the people who spend money are. Right. If if that if people spent money equally, if like if you got the same number of dollars per year out of an iOS user as you did out of an Android user, we'd be talking about market share all the time. Well, and not just the money; it's the influence too. Like I I mentioned this week that Clubhouse, the the hot new social media app, is iOS only for now, and they've just announced that with their funding round they just raised, they're going to start work on an Android app. I mean, no, and again, it's exactly like what Instagram did 10 years ago, where they were iPhone only while they were new and fluid and wanted one thing to work on while they were really changing things around and figuring out what it was. And then once it got big, then they went to Android and, you know, so that they could let everybody in the world join the network. And Clubhouse is sort of doing the own thing, the same thing, and it would never work. Clubhouse, nobody would have heard of it if it was Android only. I mean, I, I'm not sure if we have a good test case for that, but it's definitely true that, like, with with things being equal, like in the Windows, in the Windows and Mac days, despite the price difference of Mac hardware and all the other stuff, and the, and the vast differences in the platforms, 
the user bases were seen as more or less equally valuable. Right. They were different. Maybe you had more of the creative people on desktop publishing on the Mac, but on the PC, you had the quote-unquote business people and the regular workers, and they were more or less equally valuable. Um, if, but that's not, you know, that's not the case in, in the mobile world, right? So on the, on the desktop side, the iPod could be introduced as a Mac only thing, but it would only get big when it went to Windows. Right. That's not true of Clubhouse. Clubhouse can get big being a Mac only thing. Right. And then also expand to Windows. It's not like Clubhouse is waiting around and saying, boy, once, once Clubhouse comes to Android, it'll finally get big. No, right. no one says that. They, it's totally able to get big just on iOS. Everyone does acknowledge that eventually it will have to go to Android. So it's not, you know, it's not like you don't need Android anymore, but it's so different. And that that disparity is why people don't talk about market share as much in the mobile space, because iOS has this smaller market share, but this massively concentrated value of all the best customers, essentially right. all the ones that spend all the money and everything. Um, but if not, people would be like, oh, iOS, what is it going to do? It can't, you know, it's market share against Android. Like it, it barely uh, matches it or exceeds it in the U.S. and is way behind it in the rest of the world. And no one says that because Apple keeps showing through the numbers like we have all the customers who give us money. Right. So and, and no one else is making money. And how, however much market share numbers have always been a little bullshitty because it's always, you know, IDC's methodology is different than some other analyst outfits methodology and well how can they be different you know ballpark though they were always you know they they could be estimated whereas nobody can really estimate ios's influence share but that's really what we're all thinking about right and we know that ios has influence share that far outweighs its market share and that's the whole reason clubhouse can become a sensation ios only and the whole reason instagram became a billion dollar acquisition by Facebook mostly. I, th I think they launched their Android app right before the Facebook acquisition, but effectively when Facebook bought them, they were still iOS only 10 years ago. And it was, you know, it, it, I'm sure it wasn't even a big deal like when they were talking about the acquisition. And remember when, when people thought Facebook overspent? <laughs> a billion dollars? Facebook's nuts. That suck is I mean, crazy. I, I mean, I kind of think, like, I, I understand why people think that they overspent because, and I think Instagram itself has, has shown this, uh, when Facebook recognized that Instagram was going to be a thing, you don't have to buy the company to deal with that in the same way that Instagram or Facebook didn't have to buy Snapchat. Once they recognized what Snapchat right. was doing was going to be a thing, they just added stories to Instagram. So uh, Facebook does that strategy sometimes too. Sometimes you could buy the company. Sometimes you could just do the same thing the company's doing. And honestly, a social network that shares photos, Facebook could have implemented that themselves. And so the people, uh, some people saying that they overspent for Instagram, I think aren't necessarily saying that, oh, Instagram wasn't worth that much money. They're saying you could have potentially gotten the same results for way less money with a little bit more risk if you just added, you know, if you just did an Instagram clone, right? And the same way that Instagram did, a, you know, stories, chaps, not, chaps ugh, Snapchat stories clone in its own app right. and got most of the value out of it. Buying Instagram, though, is a lot safer because then you don't have the risk of like, well, what if we can't rebuild the social network and what if Instagram is too big and all that other stuff. So I kind of see the point of the overpaying. But honestly, if you've got the money, it's way less risk. So just buy them out. Which you know, taking us back to the web app thing on Mac, it's it's nowhere near, and maybe someday it will be on uh, mobile. But I 
kind of don't think so. And I know that it leads us into antitrust arguments, whether they're legal or even just philosophical about Apple's control over the fact that, uh, you know, WebKit is the only web rendering engine allowable on iOS and all of the things that people might want to do with web apps that you save to your desktop are limited because of the capabilities that web apps have on iOS, which are enforced by Apple, which you can easily argue cynically is all about just maintaining the primacy of native apps that happen to go through the app store and only the app store on iOS. But talking about the Mac here on this show, it, it's clear that the, the the primacy of true native Mac apps, not just a thing that you double clip like, like Slack, for example, is not a native Mac app. I mean, it's an app and you run it, but it's not a Mac app, right? Not even close. And, you know, just how many people do things, you know, my son does all of his work. As far as I know, he wouldn't even know how to use anything other than Google Docs to write a paper for school. Uh, I don't think he, I don't even think he's ever launched pages. I'll bet if I launched pages on his Mac, it would give me the first run dialogue, like, welcome to pages. (laughs) Yeah, I I think this is part of the whole, uh, reframing of what a computer is for you from the age of, you know, when I was talking about using a computer that didn't have a network connection, it ran applications and that was the whole, that was the whole deal. Right. And now it seems more like every part of the, the software and hardware platform of a desktop computer is there to give you tools to manage the complexity that is the internet. So every one of these windows on your screen is, again, a portal instead of a porthole, but a portal into the Internet. And the operating system's job is to let you deal with that, to have web browsers that let you deal with web pages, to all those services like Slack and Discord or, you know, uh, even message services or even Skype or any of these things that are, are portals into the wider Internet put a, you know, Put put some fancy Chrome around it, which is what I always thought the Chrome web browser was. It's, it's right. I don't know if this is the truth, uh, the truth behind that name, but I always thought it was such a clever way to acknowledge that this is just the Chrome around where the real real action is happening. The real action is happening on the web through web apps, right? And so there will always be value in the operating system and all that machinery to let you deal with that. It's the reason why we many of us prefer working on Macs to iPads, even if we're doing the same thing. If we're all using just email and uh you know web browsing and things like slack and instant message and all those things are available on ipad and on the mac what's the difference well the mac is letting us manage that complexity in a different way that some of us find more comfortable and flexible so that's what we do and vice versa right and so it's you know for setting aside how is that chrome built up how is that functionality built up i don't think anyone is arguing that the thing they're giving us access to is the internet and you really get into the weeds when you say, well, if we had a native Slack application, it would be receiving JSON blobs or something through an API from the Slack servers, and it would be rendering that using like a, uh, you know, an NS table view if it was an AppKit app or whatever, as opposed to receiving those JSON blobs through JavaScript and rendering them into an HTML DOM to make the, you know, scrolling view and argue all over and over again what those differences are. But like, in the end, no one is arguing that 
Slack as a service, as a, uh, you know, an internet powered service of communication that happens elsewhere and that we were just merely giving a glimpse into through a user interface. No one says that's going away. So it's, you know, that's, that is a much bigger change, a much more important change than arguing about whether it's an HTML DOM on this side or whether it's UI kit or whether it's app kit. Yeah, I think it's a dan- the the danger I see to Apple and the Mac is that it makes the Mac far less sticky though. Like it's it's way it would be way easier for my in fact that's why he he has, you know, my son has a MacBook that he does most of his work stuff on and he has this gaming PC, but he switches back and forth between them in a way because you know, like he could he can just do his work on, you know, and it's exactly the the, the promise of web apps, right? Like if he wants to use his gaming PC to write the homework paper, it's the same login to Google Docs. I mean, that's that's the promise. But the thing that would never appeal to me about it is I'm so, my fingers work the Mac way. I expect the menus to work the Mac way. Uh, it, I could never enjoy using Google Docs to write even a sentence. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I feel like that's. But people, I'm know, I'm old, and I'm I I I studied the Mac and know it inside. I know the Zen of the Macintosh way of using applications. If you tell me a standard menu command, I can tell you what the the shortcut's supposed to be. And it I, always I, bothers I, me when the shortcuts are different. When so you know, like who wrote this app? Have you ever used a Mac? Yeah, it's it's not just habit though. Like I said, it's the philosophy of how this stuff works. It's kind of you know think of it in analogies of like physical world things of someone who's got a workshop and they're making tables and chairs out of wood, right? And those all the tools, their workbench and all their power tools and all their hand tools and you know the how everything is arranged in their workshop, like those are their tools of the trade. Everyone's making chairs and tables, right? They've got legs on them. You know, there's basically a chair is a chair, a table is a table, and there's different degrees of fanciness. But that's the job to be done. But you can have a workshop with a CNC milling machine and all sorts of fancy stuff, or you can have a workshop with only hand tools, but in the end, you're all making chairs. So you're all writing that paper, and it's just arguing about how we're going to get that job done. And in terms of the stickiness, like, what's the stickiness of one particular table saw or a chisel versus, uh, you know, uh, a milling machine versus, you know, like various degrees of automation, all the different tools, right? Uh it's not like it was in the old days where not only was the Mac, you know, just a set of chisels for you to make a thing, but it's like you'd be using an application that literally didn't exist anywhere. Like, where are you going to get a WYSIWYG uh, word processor that you can use on your computer and print and hold up your screen? It looks the same as what you just typed. That didn't exist until the Mac brought it to people, right? That was stickiness in terms of, well... You can do that, or you can use a typewriter, or you can print on your Apple II where everything's in capital letters. Or like it's just, it was, there was no contest. Um, as the you know competition has moved computers closer and closer to each other in functionality, I feel like what the stickiness is is well, why do you like uh, this kind of drill instead of that kind? And the stickiness of the of the drill is not because there's no other drills that you can get because this is the best drill. Right. And what is the best platform through through which even something symbols, what is the best platform through which you can use Google Docs? Even if Google Docs, quote unquote, wins in terms of the word processor, where does Google Docs run the best? What system gives you the best way to deal with multiple windows and multiple tabs? Right. What system is the most stable, has the best performance, has the best battery life, like all these criteria. And it seems it's less lock in kind of in terms of like, well, you can't go anywhere else because we're the only people who've got Mac right. But it's in a way a more honest kind of. Uh, stickiness in that 
you keep using the tool that you find the best to get this job done, even though you know you can go somewhere else to do the exact same thing. Yeah, um, um, And so it's probably less comfortable for Apple, but I'm completely comfortable with Apple competing at that level. I'm, I'm stealing here from my dithering calling, Ben Thompson, but he, he keenly observed when the M1 Mac shipped and got these reviews and, and showed this uh, truly breakthrough in battery life and performance that, that it was no longer this trade-off where, okay, you can have fast and it runs hot and it eats the battery up, or you can run slow and it'll run cool and the battery will last long. And instead you've got these Macs that run faster than almost all, uh, certainly all of the consumer level MacBooks and low end Mac minis that they replaced that were Intel based. They run faster and far more efficiently and you get crazy long battery life and, uh, you know, double checking with my fellow reviewers like Jason Snell and, and Joanna Stern, it was like we, we had problems making the fans come on. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, what do, what do I have to do? It, they're, they're supposed to be a fan in this MacBook Pro. I can't make it come on. Um, it, so the, the keen observation there is that when Apple was on Intel, they literally were competing only on the merits of the software platform because their hardware was literally not the same. It's not like they Macs were just they, they, were, they weren't competing on hardware performance. I feel right. like they were competing on hardware like form factor, quality, product design, right. like this. Like I, I heard Ben say that. I think he was somewhat discounting the the reasons we all like Macs. Like if you know, as opposed to a PC, it's like they basically like you're not going to get anything that does better performance and right. doesn't get better battery life. Probably, although the OS was a minor help there as well. But certainly, their hardware was nicer and you know, and they potentially sturdier or more reliable, whatever. And and like a great example of the Apple. Apple magic in the midst of the Intel Mac era would be when the 5K iMac debuted and there was no way to drive a 5K display over a single video connection. And so they they like just did things to, to make two video connections drive the whole display. Yeah, and they made one integrated product. And even right. even on the, the on the laptop front, obviously they're, you know, they're getting the same Intel chips as everyone else. So that seemed like they don't have any hardware differentiation, but their software is a differentiation. Do you remember the early days when people would take an Intel Apple laptop and they would do a battery test on it running Mac OS ten and then they would put Windows on it and do right. a battery test and Windows would slaughter the battery because right. Mac OS ten had way better power management. Right. That was a they, you know so like the heart, the quote unquote hardware was the same. It's literally the same computer, but the OS was able to leverage it better in the same way that Safari competes with Chrome on the Mac by being better about battery life. They're both looking at the same web. They're both running the same web technologies. There is no stickiness in terms of platform lock-in where there's some special applications, that web apps that Safari can run that Chrome can't, uh, but you can compete within you know within the realm even setting aside the arm stuff setting aside that entirely just with the hardware being the same safari is better at battery life and that's a place where and and it's also fast so apple does have places to compete on both the hardware and the software front that it always has it's just that the m1 shifts that balance of power so far in apple's direction on the hardware side that like what was previously like what apple could previously win there for the things we just described like well maybe we'll make our os better and and sit battery life better maybe we'll have better design hardware that's and more attractive and now it's like okay and also it's just better in all the other boring ways like speed and and you know power consumption yeah totally all right let me take one a bonus break a fourth and final sponsor break for our good friends at squarespace hey squarespace is the all-in-one platform 
where you can make a website. Everything that you need to do to make a website, a template to choose from, uh, components you can drag and drop out to put a blog on your website or a store on your website or host your portfolio on your website. If you have a store, they take care of all of the hard-to-do e-commerce stuff, all the secure stuff. Analytics. Oh, man, Squarespace has analytics that are just so easy to understand. Not like looking at an airplane cockpit. It's just like, oh, here's how many people are coming to your site. Here's where they're coming from. Easy to understand. 24-hour, seven-day-a-week tech support. Fast, friendly tech support. You can just get them through text. You can call them on the phone. You can start a free trial, 30 days, at squarespace.com slash talk show. And when you do sign up for Squarespace, remember that code, talk show. You get 10% off your first purchase that includes up to an entire year of service. It's a new year. I know they always remind me that it's a, that like a New Year's resolution to maybe finally update some old cranky creaky website of yours, go to squarespace.com slash talk show. Get started today. My thanks to Squarespace. One more thing on the uh, on the stickiness of yeah. why I should use a Mac over something else, and it actually is related to the Mac roundtable thing and uh, that the whole pitch of that meeting of that quote-unquote power users or the high end of the Mac market had been neglected and Apple was going to change that by making the big monster power Mac that's next to me and just generally paying more attention to what those type of users need. Um, you can get stickiness in the old style and the old sort of Mac write and Mac paint only exists on the Mac uh, by provi- providing, a, you know, stickiness in this case for essentially native applications by running applications that can't yet but maybe not for a long time, run on the web or run server-side, right? So if you're doing 8K video editing or, you know, something that involves, like, huge uh, amount of 3D processing power for, like, Pixar and their pre-visualization or whatever, that type of stuff, the web and cross-platform stuff in general, is not much of a factor, and it's really a matter of making monster hardware and then having applications that take advantage of that monster hardware directly doing exactly what it can do. So the FPGA card, the Afterburner part card for video processing, and Final Cut Pro and Mac OS. That is a solution that is not generic, and the stickiness of that solution is trying to find something that does the same job. Final Cut Pro is only on the Mac, and if you sort of get embedded in Final Cut Pro and you get that Afterburner card and you get the Mac Pro, that is a very sticky solution to that problem. No electron-based web app that is right. cross-platform is going to be doing that. In fact, probably not even a cross-platform video editing app like Premiere, because Apple's going to be the only one that knows the Afterburner card exists, and they're going to build and support Final Cut Pro, and Adobe's going to find out about it at WWDC when it's announced, right? And the other version of that is gaming. This is in the opposite direction, where the Windows has got the stickiness, because right. they've got the monster video cards, they've got the support of all the game makers, they've got their own game console that they have been making you know, synergy between the APIs with which you write Xbox games and PC games, and that is an extremely sticky platform, again, with the exception of gaming streaming services, with Apple, which Apple is fighting with their App Store policies, right? You you can't just say, oh, well, uh, we can run that on the Mac, too. You don't have any of those APIs. You don't have DirectX. You don't have, the, you don't have an Apple game console that people are already writing for. That's a very sticky solution for the PC and hard to dislodge. Those high-end applications that you know, don't run into the power envelope of a phone or a tablet, and that still use essentially proprietary advantages of each individual hardware and software platform, 
it's super important that Apple did make that turnaround because if you're worried about the ultimate stickiness, the old style stickiness, it doesn't just rely on you making a better power drill for a world that knows it needs power drills. You need to address those high end markets because that's the only place that exists. You're not going, no matter how much better your email application and, and the finder is compared to the Windows shell, that is never going to bring people over to the other side or keep them there. Right. It, so you we just have to sort of compete on in the you know on the general level of here's a nice elegant tool for you to do your normal computing stuff even if the whole time you're mostly using web apps but then also compete on the high ends where you can uh gaming seems like it continues to be a lost cause for apple you know they're trying with apple arcade but but on the other on the flip side of that things like high-end video editing and and 3d that is not gaming 3d are places where apple could make a comeback and continue to be a strong player if they just commit to the direction that they've been going in with the new Mac Pro and don't, you know, don't run away screaming after some, after facing some challenges. I have no idea how well the Mac Pro is selling, but I fear they'll be like, ah, we tried that and people aren't into it, so never mind. That would be awful. But, you know, that's that's where the real differentiation is on the on the high end. Yeah, and well, and there's still some traditional uh, things like just like photography. I don't know anybody who's a serious like either prosumer or outright professional photographer who uses web app to do their work. I mean, but we, they do update all, upload all their pictures like through whatever app you're using into cloud storage and everything, right? right? So Apple's got that; they've got iCloud and everything. But right. you know, it's the the problems become more tractable the lower the sort of computational and data volume, right? So in the beginning, nothing was tractable, and then eventually text-based things were tractable, and then text-based things with some images. And now photography is like, well, not really pro-photography, because those are big images. You're probably going to store them in the cloud, but you're going to be doing your processing locally. Right. But photography is the next thing to fall. Video is a substantial step up from photography in terms right. of computation and, and responsiveness. And then 3D, same type of deal where you could do these things in the cloud and stream them to yourself, but you, for professional applications, you need the fidelity of local things. And so those will surely be the last to fall and the last to move into the cloud, especially given our dismal uh, internet bandwidth and latency in this country. It'll be a while before they go. But but that's how it goes. Like the, the internet slowly gobbles things up, going from the small, wimpy little text things that will fit over our 2400 baud modems and then just working its way up the line. And I think photography, even though you're right, professional photographers are not editing their photos in Google Photos. That's an area that I would be worried about in the next, you know, 10 to 20 years. A professional yeah. web-based photo editor. Because, well, it, I mean, you and I are both old enough to remember when word processing was slow, right? Where, where there would be word processors and it's like, oh, I don't like this word processor. I, I can type faster than it can keep up with, right? They would have the benchmarks where it was, right. how long would it take to find all instances of a word in a document? And they would benchmark it and it That's would be true. like 15 seconds. <laughs> right. That, is, I, that was actually like a standard element of like a, like a Macworld head-to-head review of Nissus mm -hmm. Writer versus MacWrite versus whatever else. And it, mm -hmm. <laughs> how long does it take to do a word count? <laughs> I mean, this is not updated in real time as I type. What? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, you know, still photos next, video someday. But video is, of course, racing ahead and we'll all be shooting 8K soon enough. Um, right, and then plus you got VR and AR and Apple's going there as well. Right. Uh, two things. I, I, I know, where the hardware is going. And I, I know you've talked about this. You guys talk about it all the time on ATP. What? What? I'm curious what you think. Apple's the rest of 2021 is going to look like with the rest of the Apple Silicon lineup. 
do what do you think they're going to get to every other Mac this year? I mean, I see no reason why they couldn't get to every other Mac this year. I forget what the original two-year starting point was. Remember they said they're going to complete the transition in two years? Yeah. But isn't this the second year, more or less? Yeah, I'm not quite sure how they're counting that. And I kind yeah. of feel like they gave that an under-promise so they can over-deliver schedule. Yeah. And they definitely under-promised and over-delivered 15 years ago with the uh Power PC to Intel transition. Everybody was a little shocked when they had the, the Intel Macs ready to go at Macworld in January, just like seven months after they were announced. People were thinking that maybe they, the first ones would appear at the next WWDC. Yeah. So I, I think, uh, the, the Mac Pro replacement, not this year, right? But no one cares about that one. Right. I'm just saying, setting, setting that one aside, right. I feel like there's no reason they can't have a new iMac and the new high-end, uh, and, you know, the new high-end uh, laptops this year. Because that's not that many computers. They don't have right. that many Macs. Like, they did, you know, their, their bread-and-butter laptops that everybody buys that are not too expensive, right? And they're going to do the bigger, fancier laptop and then the iMac and then the 2022, whatever the hell they're doing with the Mac Pro. That is entirely plausible. The thing we talk about at ATP all the time is... But what does that look like? Does it just look like the uh, the current crop of things where externally the computer looks the same and internally it has new stuff? They could do that, and it would be pretty straightforward, although the iMac is begging for a redesign, so we're hoping that one's going to actually have different outsides. But then there's the next phase, which is, okay, given that you have, quote-unquote, completed the transition and your whole line has these, again, setting aside the Mac Pro, your whole line has ARM chips. Now, when do you make the Macs that you could only make with an ARM chip? Because thus far, none of the Macs that they have put out with ARM chips are Macs that they could only make with an ARM chip. Maybe the fanless MacBook Air, but externally, it looks the same. Like, it's, you know, it's not, there's nothing about it that's like now the designers have free reign to do things that they couldn't do before, other than deleting a fan from basically the same size and shape case. Right? And, and Which they, is fine, they, they but, did have the one port MacBook, which wasn't called the Air, but didn't have a fan. Yeah, but they did that not on ARM. It was just dog slow. I know. Right. <laughs> right. But that's what I'm saying. I, I feel like that's the proof that, that they still haven't yeah. built a Mac they couldn't make without right. it. Or, or, you know, an iMac that is way thinner and is, you know, like the, the, the touch screen angle of like trying to do something like a Surface Studio or like there's just, there's, I don't know if they're going to do that this year because we, we, it's hard to tell. The first round of computers were the low end ones. They were straightforward. We were blown away by the performance. They're great computers, but also nothing about them other than the, pre, the performance and battery life is shocking. It's a MacBook Air. It's got a good keyboard. We love it. It's great, but you know, it doesn't break any new ground in terms of the form factor. And so I, if trends continue, they will do the transition exactly on that strategy, again, with the exception of the iMac and possibly the Mac Pro, where the iMac desperately needs a new case design, and the Mac Pro, there's all these rumors of a smaller one, so throw that in the gears. But I, I fully expect the 16-inch MacBook with an ARM processor to look just like the existing 16-inch, but be way faster and have better battery life and make less fan noise, and everyone will be like, that's A-OK. And even if they do the iMac, even if they just take the current 5K iMac and bring out one that's like that but with an ARM processor and do it this year, it'd be kind of disappointing, but it'll also be ridiculously fast and not make any fan noise. Yeah. So that's good, right? And then who knows what they do with the Mac Pro. But it's the next generation of computers, the ones where they really do say, "Let's let's rethink... How, everything. Let's rethink everything about our Macs because now we have so much more flexibility to do different things, whether it's touchscreens or styluses or size and weight and just everything about them. You can make so many different decisions, and those are the ones that I'm the most excited about. 
but I don't really expect those this year. I'm I'm hoping against hope that we will see the new completely redesigned iMac, iMac this year, and it will be an iMac that would not work with an Intel processor. That is plausible, especially if it comes late in the year. But I'm, you know, I don't I don't want to get my hopes up and be disappointed again. And I'm not uh, addressing any like German rumors. Just just my own speculation. But I know that the German rumor is that there is an iMac in the works, and it's very thin throughout, as opposed to having a uh, like a belly, you know, that tapers to the edges, but actually is kind of fat it, right in the middle to hide all the computer guts. I think it, you know, it, clearly given the performance of the Mac Mini we see with the M1, they could make a Mac that's pretty much literally just a display and the computer part is just a super thin thing that doesn't even seem like there is a computer. I would I mean, love to the, see. That. There's the GPU question, though, because right. like, if, That's they, if they don't, if they don't do third party, if they do do third party GPUs, all of a sudden your power budget just went way up because third party GPUs are what they are, right? And that you need some fan and cooling for that. If they don't do third party GPUs, then Apple has yet to demonstrate that they can produce a GPU on their own that rivals the power of the current top end iMac GPUs. That and that to me is like the, that to me is my f- very biggest question for 2021 max is what's the gpu story because i feel like the cpu story we've got it right they're just going to add more high performance cores like so the current m1s are eight cores for for the high performance cores for the you know low performance cores whatever what do they call them Efficiency cores. Oh, like efficiency, an, it's like an right. efficiency suite at a right. hotel. Right. High efficiency cores. And I feel like the M1X or the M2, whatever they're going to call it, but I suspected maybe it'll be the M1X. Uh, I think they'll just add, maybe it'll be 12 cores and they'll have eight high performance cores and four that, you know, you don't need to really add more of the high efficiency cores because they only run when you're doing stuff that isn't taxing. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, all the multi-threaded stuff, like compiling stuff in Xcode and anything in a video app that's multi-threaded that uses the CPU, all of it, you know, gets twice as fast because there's twice as many high performance cores. It's the GPU story that to me is fascinating in terms of where they're going to go. Because I feel like, you know, now that they've declared independence from Intel again, it's it's not just being faster than like the current Intel iMac Pro. It's we know what the high performance is. It's the NVIDIA, you know, giant, big, hot, flaming gaming PC GPUs. And I'm not saying they're going to beat them, but they know where the bar is, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a question of whether they're interested in that particular kind of performance. Like, if you look at the Mac Pro, where you can have, like, two cards, each of which has two giant GPUs on it, those GPUs are not gaming GPUs. Those are GPUs made for people doing either video or actual 3D, because video uses a GPU a lot, too, or actual 3D stuff um, that is not oriented towards gaming. It's oriented towards 3D modeling and all that type of stuff, and it's it's a different... It's a different uh, type of product to address that market, right? Uh, and it, that market is small, way smaller than the gaming market, but the barriers to entry on gaming, like I said before, are much bigger than just, hey, do you have a good GPU? Because, you know, <laughs> Apple doesn't have DirectX. Apple doesn't have Xbox. They don't have any of those APIs. You may, if you, Apple wants to push metal, and that's great for all the iOS games, and it's great for those iOS games to be ported to the Mac, but... 
that's not where the high end of PC gaming is, right? That's where the high end of mobile gaming is, and Apple's well positioned there, but it's a very different market. And honestly, mobile gaming is bigger than PC gaming. So a lot of this is just kind of like bragging rights. But in terms of stickiness, uh, yeah, mobile games can run pretty much everywhere because mobile GPU power is small. But on the high end of gaming, those games can't run on your phone for the most part. Fortnite accepted, right? But like, <laughs> there, there, is, there is a high end of, uh, of gaming. Um, and so for, for the GPU stuff, it's so far, Apple has not shown any interest in trying to match NVIDIA uh, for high-end gaming cards. They don't offer anything like that on their Mac Pro today. Right. Uh, the, the most expensive GPUs you can get on your Mac Pro are way more expensive than anything from NVIDIA and have way more teraflops, but are not way better for games because that's not what they're made for. And that's not what you buy them for. And who would spend this much money, you know, spend these, you know, it's like 10 times as much money you'd spend on a gaming PC and you'd have worse performance on a Mac Pro. Right, so, so Apple doesn't seem interested in that market at all. And so I do wonder, you know, for the Mac Pro next year or whenever it comes out, they do have to at least match what they're doing now, which is, oh, so I can get four GPUs that use like 200 watts of power each uh, and that are tailored to professional 3D and video applications. What is the Apple equivalent of that? Or does Apple just ship continue to ship the best AMD offers? Because that's also a perfectly viable alternative we just don't know what the story is because thus far the only max that they've released with the uh, arm processors are ones where they can get away with using the in- embedded gpu and it's great and honestly i think they can get away with using the embedded gpu on the 16 inch as well they'll just scale it all up it's right. when you get to the imac and the mac pro where there's a big question mark right where it's more than just driving a second pro display xdr right i mean because what are the things that you use the gpu for in a high-end, multi-thousand-dollar Mac setup. I mean, at a basic level, one of them is you might want to have multiple 5K or 6K displays, and you want but, them... But, but honestly, that's like that's so below the... Right. Uh, the the limitations of like even the even the wimpiest like what is it the the nine hundred ninety nine dollar computer runs the six, the right. Pro Display XDR so that's that's fine running running the monitor used to be a big thing and we're kind of in that mindset but these days the GPUs are all good enough now that they right. can all run big monitors it, enough to cover your entire field of view and no matter you know if money's no object you can put as many XDRs in front of you as is practical to use and you, we can assume Apple can make GPUs to drive them as yep. well as you want them driven so next I mean the the real limit there is the bandwidth of the, the wire connecting the display to the thing because right. it's not the GPU power to crunch those pixels or even to composite them. It's getting the data out of the computer into, and that's not a, a, a limitation that is uniquely Apple. Everyone's using the same uh, interfaces right. to talk to their monitors. Right. Gaming is another one, and that's just like a whole universe unto itself where you know the Mac just isn't a major player and. You know, I, I've got inklings that Apple is, there are people at Apple who are at least sniffing at the question and asking, well, wait, why aren't, why isn't the Mac part of gaming? What, what? I mean, VR is a big angle. Actually. Right. We know Apple's super into that. Right. And, and VR thus far has not set the gaming world on fire, but it right. is a gaming adjacent technology. And right. so if you get really good at VR, you're also kind of really good at VR games. Like it's, it becomes a, 
It's so much more an API question, right? Because the current crop of AMD GPUs, despite the fact that Apple is just still on the outs with NVIDIA and that NVIDIA does have the best gaming cards, the current crop of AMD uh, video cards do give the NVIDIA cards a run for their money, right? It's not it's not like they're just so far behind that nobody cares, right? Still, right. the 3090 is probably the king in, in most games, but if you see the benchmarks of the latest AMD cards, sometimes they beat the NVIDIA ones, sometimes they fall behind. Overall, it's a... It's a you know, a, right. a narrow win by NVIDIA, maybe, but but they're in the it, ballpark, which right and, and didn't so that, used to be that the is case. available to Apple to do. The problem is, great, so you got a great GPU. Well, you better reboot into Windows because you can't play any of the games because right. you know they're all based on DirectX, which is a thing that Mac doesn't have. So you know, maybe VR is one of the answers where they, if they come out with a compelling VR platform that you know clarifies the market in the way that the iPhone clarified the modern smartphone market and they can expect games to be written for it as opposed to, well, we've got these games that, you know, are targeting all this Windows Xbox stuff. We can't really just, it's not worth it for us to move it over there. You kind of need to write it from scratch for the thing. Maybe they've got something like that in mind. I don't know. I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't think they should be expecting that to happen because VR gaming has been a thing on the PC for a long time now and unless Apple is doing something very different, there's probably no combination of hardware and software that Apple can release that will have a substantially different impact on the VR gaming market than all of the existing PC-based VR gaming products, right? Because, right? you know, it is what it is, right? If you have a different idea, say it's either not games or it works in an entirely different way, that's fine. But if you merely come out with the Apple version of an HTC Vive or whatever, or an Oculus, right? We we have that already. It's on the PC, and the chances of Apple beating those platforms in price performance, let alone get, getting into game support and what you actually run on it, are very slim. So we don't know what Apple's play is there with the VR AR thing. Maybe it's not gaming. If it is gaming, they can be an also ran. They can be a maybe a sibling and eventually a competitor. But actually competing in the gaming market requires a long-term will that Apple has yet to demonstrate in that market. Yeah, I, I, you know, so let's call it its own universe and say it's a maybe, and I think they've got their eye on it, but, uh, I mean, you know, you'd lose a lot of money if you ever bet on Mac gaming becoming a yeah. big I thing. Mean, but AR years. and VR can be used for plain right. old applications, too. It's right. not just gaming. Well, and the other thing, though, that Apple has shown, and this, I, it was a very big part of the... I don't mean to be dismissive, but the dog and pony show they had when the iMac Pro debuted and they had a, I, I, I maybe they did something on the West Coast too, but in the East Coast, it was, you know, media was invited up to their secret mansion in New York and they had like, it was like, felt like being in school where you'd go on a field trip and you'd go from station to station, but there was, you know, the developer station and the developer station was somebody, you know, somebody from Apple product marketing and had a thing when they were running uh, a bunch of VMs, running, you know, other, op- like Linux and doing server-side stuff and doing all this stuff in parallel and showing you all this, you know, this is how great this machine is for developers and come here behind the machine and feel, you know, how that it's not running hot, there's no fan. And then you'd move to the next station and it was this and it was that. But one of the big storylines of this was the parallel processing with GPUs, which they were doing at the time with the iMac Pro with the uh, the external GPUs, the eGPUs, which they've kind of since backed away from. I mean, it's only been a handful of years, but it's already seems like 
yeah, we're not really going to do that. But they they made a big deal of saying that for a lot of pros, like 3D, it was like 3D rendering. I forget which app it was, but they were showing how much faster it was when you plugged in this eGPU with a bunch of stuff that ran in parallel. And all of a sudden, you know, 3D artists can do these things that used to be like, well, render it, wait, and then see. And then it's like, instead, no, you can do it in real time and tweak it as you go. And, you know, anybody, you don't have to be a 3D artist to know that something that you used to have to wait, see what it looked like, then tweak, then wait again. It's way better to be able to model it live and tweak it and, you know, play with it in your hands. Uh, But that's, you know, eGPU stuff with the, you know, that's talking about doing it at the very highest level nothing they've shown on their GPU front would say that Apple has the chops to do it, but I kind of think that that's where, what, that's what they're going to show in 2021, that they... Part of what Apple, I think, was showing in that demo is the thing they've demonstrated a lot is that for things like whatever that 3D program was, it was Maya or whatever, that that, that Apple has, Apple has, uh, Apple's OS, Mac OS, has capabilities in it that allow programs, if written to these APIs to flexibly take advantage of all the GPU power that's available to them. So part of plugging in the eGPU is to say, and also we're still using both the discrete and the integrated GPU that are inside this laptop and also the eGPU. So it's not like we're saying, okay, we plug in the eGPU and now the eGPU does all the work. The clever APIs to make that possible provided the application vendors right to them is an advantage of the Mac platform. And it's in a realm 3D apps or whatever, where the Mac does have some tiny semblance of a foothold or maybe a fingernail hold, right? Because they've just been pushed out of almost all of those markets, but they're trying to come back to them. And so unlike games where you have the whole, it's, games is more like TV streaming, where it's a creative business and you need you need creative content and hits. Things like uh, audio, video editing, and 3D, you just really need to have one or two or three good big players there. You need to have Photoshop for, for photo editing. You probably need to have some kind of thing for video. Apple's got Final Cut, right? right. Uh, you need to make sure Premiere is still on your platform. You don't need, it's not like gaming where it's like every year you need to wear the hits, wear the blockbusters, wear the, wear the great games, right? And so it is easier for Apple to claw back some semblance of market share in that market with its assets of, you know, hey, we have an OS that's flexible enough to use GPU power wherever it's available, right? But in all those instances, like you said, when they plug in the eGPU, it's made by AMD, right? right? And and Apple's insistence on not moving and using anything from NVIDIA seems is more and more puzzling. I just really want to see the tell-all book about that because I you figure if it was Jobs' you know, vendetta, that makes perfect sense, but he's been dead for years and they still don't want to go near them. And then the other story about that NVIDIA sold them parts that failed and NVIDIA wouldn't take responsibility for it. And that's the type of thing that could give like Tim Cook a lifelong grudge where it's like, we're never working with you again because your crap didn't work and you didn't make it right for us, right? So that makes some sense. But either way, like it's it's an uncomfortable situation. Like Apple, like the the ARM based Macs don't have AMD GPUs in them. It's Apple's GPUs. Apple bought GPU companies and integrated right. them into their chip team, right? And so, in this sort of in this dark period now, where we don't know what's going to happen with the rest of the ARM based Macs, everything that's happened so far fits with what we see. Low end uses chips that look a lot like the iPad chips, but have a little bit more stuff in them. Integrated GPU that all makes perfect sense. No surprises. 
there is the one path that we could take from this point on, which is guess what? There will only ever be Apple GPUs and systems from now on. And you didn't know this, but Apple's been working on an AMD caliber discrete GPU for years, and here it is, right? Yeah, that's and that's what I think they're going to do. And then to tie it in with German rumors, and I guess this one isn't from German. I think it's from the information, but this story about the headset costing $3,000 and having an 8K display in both eyes. Mm-hmm. If that's true, that's a hell of a GPU. In a well, they're using foveated rendering, where they only render the part at full resolution where your eyeballs are looking, so you get a lot of cheating out of that. But still, for something that's light enough and cool enough to be on your head, I mean... Well, I mean, the the, the rumor pictures of this show it looking a lot like an Oculus, as in terms of that size. Yeah. Like, Remember, we were talking about the Apple glasses for years right. and years, and now as we get closer and closer to a real product, it's like, well... Well, it's basically an Oculus. It's a big ski mask that you put on your head. It's got screens in it. Yeah. The, the GPU thing, I continue to have trouble believing that Apple is going to appear out of nowhere with an AMD or NVIDIA caliber or high-end GPU. I continue to think that the most obvious and easiest path for Apple in the next few years is to ship AMD GPUs in their computers just like they are now because they're really good and somebody already makes them. And Apple has never made anything like that. And I would think that if Apple had internally a GPU team able to make anything that can compete with those two players, we would have heard about it for years from them hiring all of the the best GPU designers in the world to make those things. Now, arguably, maybe they already have them because they came with PowerVR or Imagination or whoever the hell they bought. So I don't know. It's hard to tell with Apple hardware, with the internal secrecy stuff. Like, we didn't know about the 64-bit phone CPU until it came out. So they're they're really good at keeping secrets. But I, if I had to put money on it, I would say they'll just use AMD GPUs because they're really good, and they already exist, and they can get them to work. But the headset, you're right, is the big question mark. I don't see them using an AMD GPU in the headset just because of the portability issues, and AMD is not as focused on this specific application as Apple will be. So maybe the headset has an Apple GPU, but the iMac and the Mac Pro have AMD GPUs. I'm I'm 60-40 on the side, 60 on the side that Apple's going to do their own. And they are, it is going, the 64-bit mobile CPU is a good example of, whoa, this came out of nowhere and it wasn't even rumored that that's what sort of GPU story they're going to drop this year. But 60-40 because... Well, I mean, we're using the George Costanza rules. That means that I'm right, right? <laughs> Maybe. So they, 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 and when it comes to betting, just do it with the opposite of whatever Gruber's doing and you'll win. Well, I'm better on betting on this uh, Apple stuff than I am betting than, on than football. football yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> could have made a know. lot of money this year. If somebody who faded me on every single bet. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. Would've, would've like, I don't know anything about anything that you're betting on, but it does seem like you lose a lot. And you would <laughs> you could have bought a car betting against me on the Super Bowl. Right. Just, you know, whenever you buy GameStop, just do the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I even lost money on GameStop. I know. Like a like an idiot. I, that's what I'm saying. It's just, it's actually a viable strategy. It was like double at one point. And I was like, well, I'll wait. It was a like 480. I was like, oh, I'll sell it at 500. There we go. You got there. greedy. Yeah, I got greedy. But that was my bet. It was always, it was always a. It's fun money. That's fun money. Get rich or nothing. You don't, you don't, you don't tend to win at Las Vegas either, but it's fun. No. <laughs> uh, last but not least, this is to wrap it up. What do you think of the current state of Mac OS as a whole? Are you happy or are you not happy? I mean, I think as technology marches on, our standards increase, right? None of us are, uh, like, the the honeymoon period of a single application not bringing down the Mac is long since over, 
right? We just, there's certain things we just accept as the way things work, right? right? And our standards get higher. So not only do we not want applications to not crash our computer, but if one application misbehaves, we don't want it to be, to make other parts of the system unresponsive. We don't want things to have bugs. Like the applications themselves have been getting more complicated with all sort of network syncing for everything. And just, we, we want everything. We want it to just be, you know, our, our demands increase as, as things get better. So the state of the Mac operating system as compared to what it was like 10, 20 years ago is fantastic, but also the expectations have changed. So coming from a current day perspective and not comparing it to, you know, operating systems a decade ago, I think that the Mac needs fairly desperately a several refinement passes because the main thing that I find frustrating about the Mac these days is not related to any feature it doesn't have or even the the annoyances of the UI. It's like, make a laundry list of the features that exist in macOS, and so many of them I can say, well, I've written that feature off because it just doesn't work enough of the time for me to bother with it, right? And that shouldn't be the case. There shouldn't be whole swaths of the OS that I just don't even look into anymore because even though ostensibly this this feature does this thing, Practically speaking, it does it so badly that you will get too frustrated by trying to use it for that purpose, so just use something else. Whether it's something as simple as iCloud Drive, which I swore off based on the early experiences in which it supposedly is better now, but basically I moved on and used things like Dropbox or, you know, Expand Drive or whatever instead, all the way to things like Spotlight that have been around forever, but that have weird reliability issues or are inscrutable or are not tractable, right? Uh, or even, like, just that... I was thinking about this the other day. The, the philosophy that Apple has endorsed on the Mac for so many years related to everything that syncs with anything was that, oh, it just it magically works behind the scenes and don't worry about it. But then when it doesn't work, you have no recourse. And it's incredibly frustrating. There are tons of the parts of the system that are like that. And I was shocked. What was it like? Last year, this year, last year, whenever the first version of Messages on the Mac came out that had a sync button in preferences. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. That blew my mind because I'm like, yes, do you know how everyone else does this? There should always be a way to force a sync right now. There should always be a way to reset or refresh or get out the crufts because so many parts of the macOS are supposed to be silently doing something behind the scenes but then get hung up and don't work and are impossible to debug. And it makes people just forget about that feature and say, well, I'm just not going to use that because I can't rely on it. Even if it's something as simple as like, when a reminder comes up and it comes up on my phone and it comes up on my Mac, look at Apple with the amazing ecosystem of all their products working together. And then on my Mac, I do a thing that, that I like, dis- or oh, sorry, on my phone, I dismiss it. When I dismiss it on my phone, I want to see it go away on my Mac sometime, some reasonable amount of time later. It doesn't have to be the millisecond or the second, but when I dismiss it on my phone, I just sits there on my Mac. I'm like, Mac, what are you doing? I dismissed that on my phone five minutes ago. That type of thing makes me think, should I be using reminders or should I use a third-party app? Every, almost every feature that's part of the Mac operating system should be much more reliable and much more like debuggable when it does have problems. Just every single one. There's almost nothing in the system that you can say oh, that works reliable all the time and it's performant and I can't imagine any problem with it, right? And it just seems like we never get the chance, that those teams never get the chance to refine existing features to the level of polish that they should. Whereas on iOS, it seems like more of them do. Not that iOS is perfect, but it seems like more things are polished to an appropriate level of shine on iOS than they are on the Mac. That's what I want from the Mac now. I want someone to polish this sucker. 
No new features. Bertrand said it. We need to have like two years of no new features. Two years just to fix the crap that's in the operating system already and make it all work all the time. And for the things where you know there's some weird scenario where it might not work because there's a bunch of corrupted data hiding somewhere, give me a button to force the sync. Give me a button to reset or redo. Give me the equivalent of SCK for whatever these data structures are. I want to like give me the tools to understand what's going wrong and to make it happen. When people, what was it? Cable Sasser of Panic was saying he's, his wife has her photo libraries has been like having this progress bar for like a year that it just yes. never completes. Yep. Right. I've got that like, on my iPhone. It's it's like just what it makes you want to not use Apple's photos. Photos yes. is supposed to do a thing. Make it do the thing. The Steve Jobs thing. You know, what is what is dot Mac supposed to be? And why the F isn't it doing that? Right. Almost everything in the Mac needs that level of polish, and and it seems like Apple completes the features, ships them, refines them over the course of that OS release, and then never revisits them. And so much crap is just sort of like dying on the vine from neglect on the Mac. That's what I want out of the Mac, and that's what it needs. Because honestly, getting back to what we were talking about, like why do you like the Makita Power Tool over the you know Craftsman Power Tool or whatever? They're both drills. They both drill holes. Why would you prefer one over the other? That's the whole point of the Mac. It's got to do whatever it's doing better than the alternatives. And that's how Apple's built-in apps have to compete with third-party apps, and that's how Apple's entire operating system needs to compete with Windows. They all do similar jobs, but you should the Apple should be make the one that we prefer because it does the job better. I I would like to see them not they don't have to acknowledge it because this isn't the sort of thing you can brag about on stage. Although remember, I mean the, the no new features this year for 106, it, it got one of the most raucous applauses. I mean of course yes, it's the WWDC crowd, not a consumer crowd, but it it was you know, it, it got a wonderful response and everybody remembers 106 as maybe the best and most stable release of not just that OS, but any OS any company ever made. Well, 10.6.0 was super shaky, and it did uh, stuff like introducing Grand Central Dispatch right. in 10.6 and all this crap like that. So, <laughs> but, but what people remember is by the end of 10.6, it was right. solid. So like, like 10, the consumers... 10, 6, 8, right. Yeah, the consumers experienced, weren't at WGC and didn't care, but everybody everybody wants this. The consumers, basically, it's only downside when you screw it up, they get angry, but developers love it because developers, they see it as an upside. You yeah. That would still be a applause line. If they do that today and say, guess what, in macOS, we're having a refinement year, that would be such a huge, huge applause line at, at, at WWDC. And honestly, regular rank-and-file Mac users are not looking at macOS and saying, boy, I wish it had this feature or that. All they care about is why the hell isn't mail search working when I switch users. That's, that's what people care about. So Just make it work. So speaking of that in particular, so I have a couple, I don't have a bunch, but I have a couple of smart mailboxes, uh, in mail on my Mac. And again, it's one of, it's one of my favorite features on the Mac because you still can't make smart mailboxes on ios but i have one that it's just called seven days and it's just all my email from the last seven days and it's my weird way of dealing with the fact that i have tens of thousands of unread emails in my inboxes but if my seven days smart mailbox is zero unread that's my version of like inbox zero you I need to have a whole other podcast about how you deal with email. Right. I do. I, I need psychoanalysis with, for, for the way I deal with email. But it, it, a week or two ago on this, the M1 MacBook Pro, it, it was like I had switched to the smart mailbox and it wasn't even like switching the messages that were listed. It was just bizarre. And then I figured 
that it was like all busted. It, and then I was like, what the hell is going on? And then I figured out Spotlight was just busted system wide. Like any Spotlight search just returned nothing. And I thought, oh boy, this is trouble. Maybe I now I, it's been a while since I've dug into the MD util command line stuff and how do you nuke? And I was like, well, let me just try restarting. And I restarted and then everything just worked. And it didn't, I was expecting that it would, I'd look in activity monitor and there'd be, you know, some kind of spotlight thing running that was re-indexing everything. Nope. It just, something crashed silently with no error message and everything seemingly looked all right. But I, I just, it's the sort of thing a normal person would never think to do. You're not supposed to have to restart your Mac normally right you most people should only really restart when they run you know like a system update that needs to restart uh it you know that's i don't know why like, i mean that's the type of thing that shakes people's faith in right. a particular feature like if you say you're using apple mail as your mail thing and it starts behaving like that even if you solve your problem by rebooting that's going to make you think, do I want to keep using mail for this? Right. It, just, it has one job. Just show me messages and stuff. And when I click on them, I, you know, when I click on things in the sidebar, change the detail view. Like, it's not a complicated application from a user's perspective. And when basic stuff like that doesn't work, it makes people think, maybe I should just use Gmail. And honestly, I've been using the, the web interface of Gmail forever because, it, it, because of the boring attributes it has of being the same everywhere and always, always, always working. Uh, and that's been, you know, I loved, uh, you know, Entourage and what was the one before that? Claris Emailer. Right. And like, those were my favorite native applications. I never got on board of the Apple Mail train because by then Gmail was in effect and I couldn't get over the advantage of having the same email rules everywhere and a consistent view of my email from every single platform. And there's no way Apple Mail would get me back onto it with all the horror stories I hear about it, like basic things not working i can't understand how people do anything in mail in that way now i i use apple mail as a backup of my a local backup of my gmail i pop from gmail down to apple mail so i do launch it from time to time but i don't use it as my application right and so just how do you bring back apple mail and you know you don't bring it back by saying oh we're gonna have all sorts of neat features that are like uh, you know like hey.com or like all those other you know inbox that uh, the gmail bought like all those cool features of how to manage email no Step one, make it a reliable application that, that works for its intended purpose. Step two, after you've done that, and it can handle everybody's giant mailbox reliably 100% of the time without crashing or losing email or being wonky, then you can start thinking about, oh, here are some cool features for you know managing my email in a better way. But honestly, Apple Mail... It's changed so much over the years in terms of weird interface tweaks, but it has never substantially improved on the basic premise of, like, does it work all the time? Like, to compare it, what I always compare it to uh, is a, an application that has always looked similar, Net Newswire. Can you remember clicking on a sidebar in Net Newswire and not having it do something in the right thing? Right. Like, and Net Newswire is a complicated application. It syncs with a million feeds and everything like that. But UI-wise, it, it has always been a very similar sibling to Apple Mail, but has always been so much more reliable than Apple Mail. And I can tell you that the development team for Net Newswire is substantially smaller and less well-funded than the development team for Apple Mail. So it makes no sense. I will say I have cause for I, I'm I'm overall optimistic though I I would like to see the same thing and the reason here's where I was going with my but they can't say this on stage but I think that they should just acknowledge it is desktop operating systems are 30 years old right the Mac came out in 1984 it turns out that the basic idea of doing things in Windows that you can resize around your screen and a menu bar at the top 
it, it it has permanent staying power. There's no there's no need for innovation, like radical innovation. It's it's done. It's a set thing. It's the way that like somebody from 1984 could get. Well, you'd have some problems in a car today, like. I mean, it, I, I wouldn't say that it's done, but I would say that it is a form. It is an acknowledged form. Right. But, and there is value in a high quality implementation of that form. It doesn't mean it's the be all end all form and it is even the best form, but it is a form. Right. And so your but, goal should be give me the best version of that form. You could also be working on other forms. Arguably, they are with the iPad and the VR. That's fine. But for the Mac, don't worry so much about. Uh, trying to add another giga to the Mac because fundament unless you're going to change it fundamentally and it doesn't seem like you are anytime soon, just make the best version of macOS that you can make without worrying about. Other- and honestly, I think that Apple hasn't been worrying about radically changing the Mac. They've mostly just been fiddling around at the API layer with iOS compatibility, right. and they had a couple of diversions in the Lion error of trying to make it more iOS-like. Some of which worked and some of which didn't. But at this point, I, I think what you're trying to get at is like, don't. Either either tr- wow me with your amazing innovation, but if you're not going to do that, don't try to impress me. Just make an awesome Mac OS. Right. It's, you know, it's an Italian restaurant. Just make some good Italian dishes, you know. And- right. It's not to say that there can't be better restaurants or fusion right. restaurants or new cuisines or whatever. But if you're not going to, if you are continuing to be an Italian restaurant, just make good Italian food. Right. And don't try to, like, put, you know, don't, don't have one dish where you do Italian fusion with Mexican. Right. Like, it's not going to make anybody happy. Is that you're going to be your whole restaurant? Then fine. Then make a whole Italian-Mexican restaurant. But that's not what we're here for. We're here for the Italian restaurant. It's the thing that we know that we like. Just make that. Right. Just come out with a nice Italian bread and a plate of olive oil to get me started, and we'll go from there. But, you know, you don't have to reinvent that part. Um my 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 biggest cause for optimism going forward is the rewrite of messages in Big Sur, which was rewritten in Catalyst. Uh, I still have some issues with messages, but I would say that the new version of messages is uh, as good or better than the old version in just about every way. And they even included the sync button <laughs> for the iMessage account. Yeah. Now, now I I. I do wonder how that sync button came to be. Well, I'll say this about the sync button. I love that it exists. What I don't love is that occasionally on, you know, because I have every one of the Macs in the house, the entire family has accounts on it. So I'm very familiar with all of us sort of logging into a Mac that's not like the Mac we use every day. And the promises of messages in the cloud is, well, whatever Mac you go on when you launch messages... There will be all your message. Like, is, that's my understanding of the promise of iMessage in the cloud, or whatever the hell they call it now, right? And they've got the sync button that if you log onto a Mac and launch messages, then it's it's doing the thing, and maybe there's a progress bar. And you're and like, often I log on, I want to see the last message from my wife, but the scroll back doesn't show it. And if there's a little progress bar and it's going, I'm like, well, eventually that message will appear. So right away, I'm saying, okay, Apple, one thing you can improve is it's really important for the most recent messages to be there first. Don't worry about filling in the last year of conversations. Right. Right. Just show me the most recent recent one. Second, why is it taking so long? So I'm worried about that. Then if the progress bar ends, and I still don't see the messages I want. So then I'm glad there's a sync button. So I go into preferences, and I press sync. I like that there's a sync button. I would like it better if pressing the sync button solved my problem. Like, oh, I see that it is trying to sync now. And then I'm looking at my watch and going, hmm, well, I, still, I still don't see the last message. 
I still don't see it. And I walk away and I come back and I still don't see it. And I still don't see it. So there's still a long way to go. But it is fascinating to me that a sync button even exists. How did that button get there? Why is that button there? Who made a successful argument for that button to be there? And why Why is it necessary? And why, when I click it, does it not solve my problem all the time? And what was it as big a fight as I think it might have been behind the scenes? Or, like, or I, did it escape the... Did it just completely no notice? <laughs> and now some somebody's going to listen to this podcast and say there's a and sync delete button, the button and then right. delete the button. I mean, don't get me wrong. I would rather have it than not have it, but I also want it to do the job. Like if the regular sort of you don't have to do anything syncing fails or takes too long, the sync button should be the okay. Now do it for realsy reels, right. and that had better work because once that fails, I'm back to the, of not knowing what to do. Wouldn't Why be- can't I see the last message from my wife on this computer? I don't know. That's like my nightmare doing what I do is 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 if there's secretly like one one engineer on the messages team who got that in to solve some really very real problems and, and he listens to the show or he or she listens to the show and they're like oh my god shut up don't mention the sync button yet. don't mention. There's all sorts of stuff like that in macOS I'm sure but uh, but like unlike you know the chess app or terminal. I think there's an actual team of people on messages, yeah. and they've given it a lot of attention to give it feature parity and have it be catalyst-based and all that stuff. But what we're talking about here is, you know, one of Apple's Achilles heels, which is the sort of network services sync aspect of messages. Right. Even on iOS devices, going from one device to the next, I don't always see the same messages everywhere. I find that endlessly frustrating because the baseline, sort of the table stakes, as evidenced by things like Gmail, is no matter what device I go on, when I go to Gmail, whether it's in a web browser and a native app, I see the same list of messages. Always, 100% of the time, all the time. It never fails. I never spend three days going, why doesn't this device show the same messages as this one? Now, there's lag, a couple seconds or whatever, and there's a refresh button. The refresh button works, though. I've <laughs> never hit the refresh button and not had it instantly refresh the list to be the same as the up-to-date one from another device. That's table stakes, and Apple is failing at that with iMessage, and I find that depressing. Overall, though, what do you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down. I mean, I still it's it's the best uh, out of all the other desktop operating systems. I certainly wouldn't want to use Chrome OS or Windows, but no. I always want things to be better. It's in better, yeah. It's it's in better shape than I would have worried in twenty twenty one. I mean, honestly, the the whole sort of uh, Mac philosophy and hardware turnaround is. Uh, like in some ways, we're taking the OS for the granted, and there are, there are things that are problems in it. But in general, they haven't really super screwed up the OS. They really super screwed up the hardware for a while. So I'm I'm excited to see that turning around. That's why I'm saying you just need to get your feet under you on the on the software side because the hardware side you're going on a good path there. Yeah. Well, we're at the three hour mark, so I'm going to call it a I'm going to call it a show. I appreciate so much you coming on the show. This is good. I feel like I got a lot off my chest. You know, and, uh, stuff that's been building up. Um, what what do you want to what do you want to promote? You're on what about 18 different podcasts? ATP, everybody surely knows about. That's over at atp.fm. What else? What else you got? Yeah, reconcilable differences over on relay.fm. Uh, it's the podcast I do with Merlin Mann, where we talk about our feelings. Uh, <laughs> I got Robot or Not, which is a very silly podcast with episodes that are even shorter than dithering episodes. I mean, you know, a couple of them are two minutes long. Some are five. Some are ten minutes long. Uh, that's a very silly show, but it's fun. Uh, check that out at theincomparable.com. 
And then, I don't know, what else? I got a website that I never update. Not too many other exciting things. I feel like next time you have me on, you always have me on to talk about the Mac stuff, which makes right. sense. But at this point now, I feel like I, the next time you have me on, it should be a 100% a coaching session where I talk to you about things you argue with Ben about mm. on Dithering mm. and give you better talking points. Ah, I need that. I need yeah, that. Well, uh, you, it seems like you need that because very often you disagree, but then he like argues you into a corner and you demure. And I feel like the worst thing that could happen is that eventually he brings you over to his side and everything. And you both just agree about everything. So before that happens, we're just going to come on the show and you're going to just, you just bring up dithering topics and you'd be like, whatever, this thing with Facebook. And then, you know, you'll tell me what Ben said and then what you said. And I'll tell you how to, anyway, that's, we should do that next time. I could use that. I'm open to that. John, thank you very much. Thanks to all of our sponsors and, uh, and I'll talk to you soon.